You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So isn't it refreshing that all our suspicions, Christopher O'Brien, are confirmed the NSA does know what we're doing and when we do it? Wow, stop the presses. <laughs> Jeez. I mean... God, since the late 90s, I've been saying that they're probably amassing daily a digital dossier on everybody, and and uh, I, th- I, th- I think that's probably true. And and now they're even they even have the storage capacity and the ability to to store data, you know, visual data, video. So it's a brave new world, Gene. Big Brother is uh, definitely alive and blinking. Well, I don't know if they're blinking. They're just watching. Well, they're blinking now that this uh, Snowden character has come out and officially uh, spilled the beans that uh, we have a, an administration that is uh, carrying on the tradition of the previous administration and into the realm of questionable practices involving throwing nets out there and collecting data, whether they need it or not, just in case they might need it in the future, they can uh, go back and refer to it. And that to me is, it it goes against uh, everything that the constitution says about privacy and to have a private life. And this is just, uh, you know, par for the course. It's a, an emerging corporatocracy in a fascist state in the eyes of some people. Oh, I like that emerging corporatocracy. But that's been true for a long time. I mean, some of the laws were signed by Clinton in the 1990s. The FISA court, which came about after Watergate, goes back, therefore, to the 70s. Yeah, but that's on a per-case basis. I mean, what they're doing is they're doing a complete, you know, monitoring of the entire communication grid on the planet. I mean, they've got got it all dialed in. This PRISM uh, program is makes echelon look like uh you know like a primitive uh, <laughs> a primitive tool is again it's par for the course I, I you know i'm i'm like most people i have nothing to hide but but i i still think that we have a right to our privacy and and this this latest word is it's just showing us that we're incrementally creeping towards you know a totalitarian uh scenario here and and i'm not happy about it but you know i'm just one guy what can I do? You know, write my congressman, right? Who's in the pocket of who knows how many lobbyists and corporate interests. It's, you know, it's, it's sad. But we're not a political show. So. <laughs> well, every time we talk about government secrecy with regard to UFOs, we suddenly become a political show. Because if the government is hiding something, who's doing the hiding? The National Security Agency, private industry, getting this stuff under black budgets. What's going on? It becomes political. Anytime we talk about anything related to government activities, the politics has to become part of it. We'll get into more of what the government might know about bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals a bit later in the show with Nick Redfern. Other monsters. (laughs) They must be talking about me. I resemble that remark. All right. So last week we had Gary Heseltine, who's been involved in... UFO research for some years, but it's interesting with him and other people, there's always a defining event that triggers your interest. So in Gary's case in 1975, he saw a UFO and simultaneously there was a brief power outage. 
That changed his life. So yeah, even classic. while he was a police detective, he was checking out UFOs on the site. Classic Dang. story. Classic story. When I was 11 years old, my brother just happened to leave a copy of Flying Saucers from Outer Space by Major Donald Kehoe on his coffee table. I saw the book and said, and I didn't talk to him. He was at work. I asked his wife, can I have this book? And she said, well, you know, it's a library book, but if you agree to return it, we'll give it to you. And I said, fine. So I took the book. And I did return it, by the way, okay, in case people are wondering. So the Brooklyn Public Library will not, 400 years after the fact, come after me looking for this book. Besides, it's in the public domain now, so it doesn't matter. You can get it online. That changed my life. Started reading about UFOs all over the place. Except with Gary Heseltine. What bothers me is all these years he's interested in UFOs, but he never went back to checking source material to see if there was a power outage reported then, what connection it might have had, what was in the newspapers about it. Was there a story in the local papers? It sounds like he reports the experience but wasn't terribly curious as to the information to back up what he said. You know, it, it bothered me. Be too difficult to follow up on that and and go back. Uh, I mean, it's in his local, it's in his town there. He could go back and look at the newspaper morgue and see if there are any articles there and and uh, do some digging into it. I'm surprised he hasn't done that. Well, I gave him a homework assignment, as our listeners remember. I said, "Okay, Gary, we want you to go back and look for the documentation, check the newspaper morgues." Ask people in your hometown. He did meet somebody at a UFO convention, someone he knew as a child, who also saw the UFO, also had the power outage. Now, it's not that there have been sightings where people see UFOs and there is a power outage. Some people think that UFOs caused a major power outage in New York City in the mid-1960s. That's an old story. Yeah. Because the power substation where the event was triggered, UFOs were seen in that vicinity. So it's possible. I'm not going to dismiss it. But someone who is so interested in UFOs, someone who uses that event as the defining moment that changes his life, he doesn't go back and check? I don't know. What do you say about that? Maybe he's afraid to look up the story and find it's not quite what he remembers. (laughs) <laughs> Just have to light a fire under his tail. Well, I'm doing that deliberately. Yeah. Well, we have somebody else that was able to come up with uh, from about the same time period. Uh, right. 75, 76 time period. Uh, our former co-host uh, had a quite a life-changing experience uh, himself and uh, f- has been asked for a number of years to to bolster that claim, and sure enough, a friend of his or associate put him in touch with a Venezuelan uh, investigator who uh, dug up uh, out of the newspaper more, dug up uh, a headline story that uh, confirms that there was an event. Of course, some of the details are a little different, but uh, but kudos to uh, some you know some some digging and and some perseverance. Well, I think you have to egg people on to find that information. I think part of it is maybe there's a fear, and I won't say it's on the part of Gary Heseltine or our former co-host, the fear that when they find the actual event written out, it won't be what they remembered. Their memories may be colored by their life experiences. We don't know. But I'm glad it happened 
in one very notable case, and I hope it's going to happen with Gary Heseltine. So back in 1975, the power outage, the UFO sighting, our UK listeners, I'm sure, will be happy to help out. Let's see what happens. Today, after a few months, we welcome back one of the most prolific paranormal book authors on the planet. I think maybe second only to Brad Steiger. Right. <laughs> He's a one-man juggernaut. <laughs> and he has a full-time job, by the way. He'll tell you that. I know. It's just amazing. Plus, he writes for, I don't know how many different online publications and magazine articles. And he's got, I don't know how many blogs and websites. Uh, the guy must type fast, Gene. Either that or he's on speed or something. I have no idea. We'll have to ask him how he manages to do this. I think the truth about Nick Redfern is that he does not sleep. His new book is called Monster Files, A Look Inside Government Secrets and Classified Documents on Bizarre Creatures and Extraordinary Animals. And this is so appropriate because now we're dealing with government secrecy, government interference, government intrusion. So we figure if they know everybody we call on the telephone, they can even break into Skype, I hear. You know, we thought the Skype communications we do for our networking, that's secure? Ah. Oh, nothing is secure, Gene. You should know that. Here is more of our security coming up. Our security blanket with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. Attack of the Rockoids has been well received by critics and readers alike. It's a thrill a minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Friends, this is Alex Jones for MidasResources.com. For more than 15 years, I have exclusively used Midas Resources for all my precious metal needs. Whether it's bullion or collectibles you're looking for, Midas Resources is simply the best. I own my gold as a hedge against inflation. This Federal Reserve fiat currency could go the way of the Deutschmark and the Weimar Republic anytime. In these historically dangerous times, it makes sense to physically hold gold and silver. Midas already has some of the best deals in the industry. But if you give them a call and mention the radio special, they will give you a list of the day's super specials. Midas brokers are standing by to answer all your questions at 800-686-2237. They also have a lot of informative free literature explaining the opportunities and risk of holding precious metals. They are ready to answer your questions at 800-686-2237. Again, that's 800-686-2237. 
time and time again. You need to come here and help us. We need assistance. Please. Those we should be able to depend on let us down. Federal and state and local officials saying help is on the way. Will the folks here in Bell Harbor say show me? Don't depend on the government to save you. Take action now so that you're prepared for the next disaster with MyPatriotSupply.com. Get the best prices on storable food, non-GMO seeds, water filtration devices, home canning equipment, survival and self-reliance books, and more at MyPatriotSupply.com. Call 866-229-0927. We are hurting down here, and we need help immediately. Before it's time to survive, it's time to prepare. MyPatriotSupply.com. MyPatriotSupply.com Weakened by GMOs, stressed out about money, and blasted by the electric environment. Hi, I'm Pastor Ginny, and that was the state I was in back in 2010. Then I learned about RNA drops. I learned that 97% of my DNA that scientists have called junk is actually packed with millions of gene switches that play a critical role in controlling how my cells, organs, and other tissues behave. I learned I don't have to put up with disease decay or decline like I'd been conditioned to believe. I began taking RNA Drops, a 100% natural formula designed to turn on those switches and provide me with amazing health and joy. Learn more about RNA Drops and order a free sample today. Visit rnafreesample.com. That's rnafreesample.com. Or call toll-free 888-577-3703. Pay only shipping and handling for a free 30-day supply of RNA drops. Get the information you need and the health you want at rnafreesample.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. With Gene and Chris this week, we have our friend and a guest co-host for the Paracast and the most prolific author of recent memory, especially about paranormal subjects. It's Nick Redfern. And he's written two books in recent months about monsters. One is called Monster Diary, On the Road in Search of Strange and Sinister Creatures. And this one, just out recently, called Monster Files, A Look Inside Government Secrets and Classified Documents on Bizarre Creatures and Extraordinary Animals. Now, Nick, welcome back to the Paracast. Do you consider these books companion volumes or what? I never really gave that a thought, actually. I mean, they're sort of totally different because a lot of the... I've written about eight or nine books on cryptozoology altogether, and most of them are written in the way I do the investigations, which is sort of on the road. You know, so when I'm doing an investigation, just let's say hypothetically it's Bigfoot, you know, I take a lot of notes, and if I'm staying in some motel after the, you know, every night, I sort of write a bunch of notes of what happened during the day, then that allows me to sort of write the relevant chapter further down the line. So most of the books I do on cryptozoology are written in like a diary on-the-road format. But this one's different because it deals with government files, you know. It's a bit difficult to sort of talk about how you sat in a government archive, you know, for day after day. So I've sort of presented this in the way I've, I've written other books, you know, where, you, where I talk about, you know, just the facts, so to speak. Now, in a case like this, when you talk about 
government secrets and classified documents. Was this done through the Freedom of Information Act? You didn't have some guy who lives in Hong Kong get the information for you. No. No, everything in the book uh, where it's a reference to an official document, it's all uh, material that surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act, which I use quite a lot, you know, to either obtain documents or to find documents a lot of people don't realize are actually already in the public domain. I mean, that's, that's one of the interesting things. You know, you can go along to the National Archives in Maryland and find, you know, there's millions of documents on all sorts of obscure subjects just waiting to be inspected. And they've, in some cases, they've been declassified for decades, but, you know, nobody's really bothered looking at them. And so for that reason, it isn't always a case of, just relying on newly surfaced stuff through the Freedom of Information Act. Also, taking a look at stuff that, you know, has just been sitting on, like, the definitive dusty shelf for 20 years or whatever. I'm interested in the musty shelves. Would you explain what you mean by that? Just people have a record of something somewhere or a journal or a diary and they never looked at it? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm talking about government documents. I mean, I'll give you a classic example. In the Monster Files book, Uh, I think it's the second chapter in the book. It deals with British Royal Navy and Admiralty files on sea serpents that go back to the 1830s and through to about 1890. And this is like a huge packed dossier of not just like newspaper clippings or report, although they are in there as well, or just reports, you know, from inexperienced sailors. The, The vast majority of them are from captains and crews of military Royal Navy ships from like 150, 160 years ago. And somebody was actively collecting all this material for reasons we don't know. You know, it kind of makes them sound like some 19th century Fox Mulder or something like that. But what's interesting is that these files were actually declassified like 25 years ago. But nobody had sort of bothered to do research, you know, to see if there was anything on sea serpents. And over the years, I'd heard rumors about sea serpent files, you know, held by the the military, etc. So I just went looking at the archives and and found them. And, you know, it wasn't a case of um, the government saying, oh, well, we're not sure if you can have them. You know, they'd been declassified years before, but nobody had ever took the time to see if the government had a sea serpent file, you know. It's just a matter of having all that documentation sitting there and no one pays attention because it's kind of screwy? No, it's because nobody bothers, you know, I think most people just don't bother looking for it because they're they're looking for other things. You know, it's like if I go to the National Archives in Maryland and look for UFO material, you know, I'm not going to pull some file at random looking for something on, I don't know, the Cuba Missile Crisis, if you like, because I'm not interested in that. So why would I go looking for it? And, you know, sometimes files have have names that aren't necessarily relevant to everything that's in there. I mean, I can remember going to the National Archives in one occasion. I think it was 2001. And um, it was just a, a file of the American Research and Development Board from the late 1940s. As I dug through it, I actually found a lot of correspondence that was actually nothing to do with the Research and Development Board. It was all farming files on foot and mouth disease. So, you know, something had clearly, I think, been misfiled, you know, or even if it was a part of their work, you know, who would have thought that the Research and Development Board would be interested in foot and mouth disease? But, you know, if you're if you research that area, it would be, but you wouldn't know and it was even in there unless you stumbled upon it by looking through a totally or seemingly unconnected file. Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't uh surprise me in the least that in a government file you should find files about foot and mouth disease. I think that 
pretty much sums up the government uh, and how they uh, how they <laughs> deal with certain subjects. Uh, they definitely well, have their it, foot in know, their mouth. I think certainly, you know, when you've got massive files like some of them at the archives, you know, stuff does get shared with other with other people in the office, and somebody misfiles something, and they're just like well, we're never going to need this again. You know, they just file it away. And then somebody stumbles across it 40 years later and wonders, you know, what the hell is it doing here versus doing there, you know. Yeah, there's probably a, uh, just an amazing amount of information that people just, as you're saying, aren't aware of. And if we even knew the half of it, we'd be probably pretty shocked at, uh, at how much documentation is already there available for people. You just have to know the right search words and search terms. And, and uh, boy, who knows what uh, you, you'll be able to dig up. And, well, and Nick, you're, uh, you're a perfect example of someone that's uh, willing to do the work. Well, I mean, I'll give you a classic example. You know, the FBI's got this website called The Vault, which is like a really good resource tool where you can download, download literally hundreds of thousands of pages of formally classified FBI documents on everything from Marilyn Monroe to 1930s era's gangsters like Bonnie and Clyde. Um, famous cattle actors, mutilations. Rockers, cattle <laughs> mutilations. But a lot of people think because the Vault website was only created like two years ago, they, they think or assume that that's when the files were released. Those cattle mutilation files, which are now online um, at the at the vault, they were released. I got copies of those in '89, and, and I shared it with Tim Good, who used them in his 1991 book, Alien Liaison. Um, so, in other words, just because the files have just been uploaded to the website, what people don't realise is that they're actually widely available where for photocopying by writing to the FBI in the pre-internet era. Outstanding. It's amazing, though. Well, I don't know if it's outstanding. It's just one of these bureaucratic things a lot of people don't realize, you know, in terms of, of how files surface, when they surface. And, you know, it's not, they don't always just surface when they become publicly visible. You know, they could be sitting there for years. These undiscovered treasures just sitting there yeah, and people exactly, don't look at them. The best way I would describe a lot of the files I use in the book was sort of more like undiscovered raw material rather than you know, sort of filing new requests today. It was more just going on like a detective mission to see what had been released but that we didn't know had been released. We know. We have Nick Redfern joining us with Gene and Chris. The book is called Monster Files. So much more to come with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. If you want to get your website online and you need reliable service, first-class service at the lowest possible price, there's only one place to go. Well, DreamHost has a special promotion with our show where they'll offer you unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, one-click web apps such as WordPress, 24-7 support. You can save over $55. You want to know how? Go to DreamHost.com slash radio, DreamHost.com slash radio. Whether it's personal mail, whether it's business email, you want reliable, dependable delivery, freedom from spam, freedom from viruses. Well, Polaris Mail offers professional email hosting services for your personal or small business use. Each account uses 25 gigabytes of storage, an easy-to-use webmail interface, and full mobile sync. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial at PolarisMail.com, PolarisMail.com. 
You've seen them on Doomsday Preppers. You've seen them on network television, Shipping Wars, and the History Channel. Now, now, the strongest shelters money can buy are here. Atlas Survival Shelters. Made in America from 10-foot diameter galvanized corrugated pipe, up to 11 times stronger than square box shelters, and built to last up to 200 years. And you won't believe the amenities. Atlas shelters contain microwaves, refrigerators, big screen TVs, water tanks, septic systems, bulletproof hatches, and much more. Virtually everything you have at home, just buried 20 feet deep and bombproof. See the amazing Atlas Survival Shelters at atlassurvivalshelters.com or call 1-855-4-BUNKER. That's 855-4-B-U-N-K-E-R or atlassurvivalshelters.com. Financing now available. Atlas Survival Shelters. Better prepared than scared. If you owe the IRS back taxes, listen carefully. Sweeping changes to IRS policies will help more people than ever eliminate their tax debts once and for all. And now, thanks to Dan Pillow, you can get the tax help you need to end your tax nightmare. Hi, I'm Dan Pillow. I've helped thousands of people reduce or eliminate tax debts they couldn't pay. And after more than 30 years of experience dealing with the IRS, I can tell you there's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. With the IRS's new policies, it's easier than ever to put your tax debt behind you once and for all. Call now at 800-346-6829 to learn how I can help you. You know your IRS debt will not go away by itself, but you don't have to live in fear anymore. Call 800-346-6829. Learn how I can help you eliminate wage and bank levies, release tax liens, and negotiate a settlement with the IRS that will put your tax nightmare behind you forever. Call 800-34-NO-TAX. Or go to my website, TaxHelpOnline.com. That's TaxHelpOnline.com. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. That bears repeating. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. And Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse is the key to digestive health. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic, strong enough to cleanse, gentle enough to use every day. Pro-EM-1 is dairy, wheat, and soy-free, contains all natural and certified organic ingredients, contains no preservatives or animal products, supports a healthy digestive and immune system, supports weight loss, improves absorption of food nutrients, aids in controlling yeast infections, is never freeze-dried, and uses three groups of live, viable, beneficial microbes to cleanse and remove toxins. Order Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse at Terraganics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, Terraganics.com. Or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Pro-EM-1, the raw probiotic. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? With Gene and Christian, the Paracast, we have Nick Redfern, prolific author of so many books I can't keep track of them. I have a big question to ask of you, Nick. You have a full-time job, you're working stiff, but you still manage to turn out all these books. I think the big question is how. It's not that difficult because, I mean, I always sort of try and stick to like an eight-to-five routine. If, you know, I do um, like two books a year, which is sort of what I average then that's a book every six months. Well, you know, if I have a, a couple of hours free here and there, you know, I, I don't sort of like to work nights or weekends, but if I do have an hour free here or there, you know, and I've got all the raw material, I can crank out a few pages in, in a couple of hours. 
And, you know, a couple of hours every couple of days spread over six months amounts to, you know, a lot of time. So in that respect, it's not that difficult. It's more a case of juggling and prioritizing, you know, time and projects. Uh, well, and, and, like and being diligent about it, too, and, and being yeah, disciplined. You know, I, I treat what I do as a job, and I don't mean by that that I, it's just a job and I have no interest in it. You know, you have to have a passion. You know, I have a big passion for everything I, I do for the most part in terms of writing. But I have to be disciplined and treat it like a job in terms of not slacking off when I've got time to do it and, and getting down and doing it rather than saying, oh, you know, I'm going to watch that show I taped last night. No, I'll watch that show when I've finished it, like, yeah. and then after I've had dinner or whatever, you know. And I found if I don't do that, you know, you start to get backed up and things pile up and you miss a deadline or a deadline looms, you know. And um, I find you have to, for me at least, you know, I work best in a structured fashion. You know, I know, I know I have a lot of friends in the writing field. They like to work through the night in chaotic fashion, you know, and that's fine. But that, that's not my way of doing it. I think some people who do this kind of writing or any kind of writing, what they do is they wait as long as possible close to the deadline and then in various Herculean efforts manage to complete what they're doing. Well, you know, for some people that probably works because they've really then got to focus the mind on it. and The quality of the writing well, suffers. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't do it like that, but I do, you know, I do know of people who they get energized, you know, by the fact that the deadline is coming or, you know, they're on a time limit or whatever and they just sort of, you know, they just get fueled up on cocaine, uh, Coca-Cola, you know, coffee, whatever their uh, thing of choice is, you know, and just crank it out, you know. So, um, but I can't do that. You know, I have to have structure and I like to keep specific hours and whatever, you know. Well, don't change it because it ain't broke. Yeah. Yeah, I, sometimes I have people who think I live some sort of weird Huntress Thompson life, you know, where it's <laughs> crazy in the office all day it's crazy stuff just going down it's not you know i get up a, a bowl of cornflakes and a hot cup of english tea and work from eight till five you know and stuff and then i do the next exactly the next day you know that's it you know sort of sitting around with vodka bottles at 12 o'clock in the day you know i'd never get nothing done or you'd become jim mosley <laughs> well he lived a long time on it <laughs> he held yeah, out you, quite you a worked on that for 50 years right huh? I guess he didn't do him any harm. Yeah, he worked for 50 years on being Jim Mosley. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. In any case, let's just get back to your discovery of these documents. Now, any of this involved freedom of information inquiries? Um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, a fair bit of it was... Well, I mean, all, every, all the documents in the book have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act. Um so, yeah, I mean, in some cases, it, it was where I applied for the files because I knew they existed because people had referenced them. Other cases, you know, it was just a matter of just sort of going through archives and wondering if there might be something there. And, you know, 80, 90 percent of the time there isn't. Ten percent, you know, you sort of hit pay dirt or whatever. So what surprised you the most in terms of the kind of information you found? Is there like one or two cases where you can say, I didn't expect to find this? Wow, this is incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the most intriguing documents, for me at least anyway, now I know some people probably listening to this are going to disagree with my interpretation, but I got hold of a, a RAND document which had been uh, prepared for the U.S. Air Force in the early 1950s, and it was basically um, sort of guidelines and directives about how 
uh, sort of paranormal phenomena could be utilized as a tool of psychological warfare against enemy troops. You know, that's to say, if, you know, country A is fighting country B, and country B, that their troops and people are very superstitious of vampires, let's spread stories and legends of vampires being on the loose in their territory. And, you know, it'll scare them or deter them from, you know, fighting in specific areas that, you know, are of sort of strategic interest. And one of the things in the file, when I read it, it immediately sort of reminded me of the, the famous Flatwoods monster story of 1952. And Flatwoods is a town, little town in West Virginia. Um, where in 1952, a number of um, townsfolk, villagers, however you want to term them, reported seeing this strange light come down on a nearby hill that was sort of shrouded in trees. And they saw this 12-foot-tall flashing robotic-type monster, hence the name of Flatwoods Monster, come sort of looming slowly out of the trees and from the hill. And it was described as said of being about 12 feet tall, and it had a head shaped like the, the image of the Ace of Spades card on a, on a, on a deck of cards. Um, had these glowing eyes, and it was, had these flashing arcs of light, etc., and like surges of energy, you know, coming from its body, kind of like Dr. Frankenstein, you know, bringing the monster to life, that sort of thing. And they were naturally terrified and fled for their lives. Well, this was 52. Now, this particular document was dated roughly a year before, and it includes a very interesting British Army story about how, during the Second World War, when the British were fighting the Italians in Italy, they came up with this sort of a brilliant or crackpot, depending on which way you look at it, brilliant or crackpot um, idea to create like a 12-foot-tall demon. And the plan was... Um, the, it would have all these flashing lights on it and these glowing eyes and also a head shaped like a, an ace of spades in a, in a deck of cards. Um, and the, the idea was to sort of roll it through the streets at night or pull it through and have people think that the devil was visiting them. And the idea was to try and make it look like that if you were allied with the Nazis and the Italians, etc., the Axis powers, you know, the devil was going to come for you. And, of course, in a lot of these little Italian villages in the mountains, they reportedly took a great deal of notice and came over to help the Allies. But when you read, you know, the description of this British robotic monster-type thing that they built... That sounds kind of familiar. Um, yeah, it sounds extremely like the Flatwoods Monster. And, of course, the, the whole thing with the British contraption is probably the best way to describe it, is that it was used as a, to a tool of psychological warfare. And that's why it appeared in this Rand report. And then a year or two later, we see something eerily similar appearing in Flatwoods. Now, Flatwoods was a little town in, like, a rural area. And that's exactly the sort of location that the British Army tested there device out in as well. And of course, you know, people say, well, why would you do that? Well, you know, a small enclosed environment with a small population, it's very easy to gauge how quickly rumors spread and belief systems develop. I suspect from reading the file that, you know, maybe the Flatwoods monster was an outgrowth of this psyop in the Second World War, and it was one undertaken in Flatwoods, you know, possibly it may have been nothing to do directly with the whole UFO issue. It may have just been done to try and determine factors relating to how quickly rumours spread and belief systems can be nurtured and, and manipulated, possibly. Well, with the Flatwoods monster, 
What always troubled me about that particular case is the fact that there was no repetition. It seemed to exist in a universe in and of itself, Yeah. and there was no other case like it. No, that's actually a really good point, because... I mean, in the 50s, you had a lot of reports of, you know, hairy dwarfs around the world and, you know, these diminutive aliens and aliens taking soil samples and disc-shaped saucers, the greys in later years and flying triangles all, all over the place. But you're right, the Flatwoods monster was more of something that just sort of popped into our reality and, and never surfaced again. You know, maybe it was actually taken back to the, the warehouse that it was made. Who knows, you know? That's Warehouse 13, ladies and gentlemen. Nick Redfern joining Gene and Chris. You're in... The Paracast. <laughs> America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Fordian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free sent right to your mailbox, plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. Got a simple question for you. Can you sell? Yes? Okay. Can you sell the intangible? If yes, and you'd like to work 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, with no overtime, no weekends, if you're passionate about not closing sales, but about opening relationships, if you truly have a desire to serve global clients who need your advertising expertise, and you're local to the Twin Cities and Burnsville, are hardworking, self-driven, with experience in sales, marketing, or advertising, are personable and a whiz on the phone, GCN wants to talk with you right now. GCN, the Genesis Communications Network, is one of the largest independent talk radio networks in the world and we're hiring right now we offer benefits and an excellent commission structure experience preferred but we'll train the right person is that you submit your resume today to advertise at gcnlive.com again that's advertise at gcnlive.com come work with the genesis communications network an equal opportunity employer it's hard to imagine when things are going reasonably well just how quickly things can change. But what would it take? Economic collapse? Massive crop failure? Chemical or biological attack? So many situations could find you in the grocery looking to pick up food for your family only to find that the shelves are empty. There's nothing. Don't let that happen. Act today to make sure that if it ever comes to that, you and your family will be provided for. Visit FreezeDryGuy.com to look at the wide variety of survival foods available. Freeze-dried foods from the Freeze-Dry Guy store longer, rehydrate faster, are nutritionally superior to, and taste better than any other long-term storage food available. Visit FreezeDryGuy.com or call toll-free 866 404 
888-666-3663. FreezeDryGuy.com. When you need it the most, will your generator, power equipment, or vehicle be ready? Gas and diesel fuels go bad quickly when stored, and more than half of generator failures during disasters occur as a result of expired fuel. PRI fuel stabilizers keep your fuel fresh for when you need it most. Nuclear power stations, emergency service providers, and ships at sea rely on PRI fuel stabilizers. And you can too. Call 888-776-9373 or visit PRIproducts.com to find the dealer nearest you. People grow cotton, wheat fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit, then carting to a private bank, having it led back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Hi, Ted Anderson. I'm placing a silver dollar in a book explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. This is Kurt Seven, the author of UFO Mysteries, and you're listening to the Paracast. In our previous segment, ladies and gentlemen, Nick Redfern revealed to the listeners of the Paracast his infamous Flatwoods Monster voice. But just specifically about the Flatwoods Monster, other than the possibility was some kind of test, what else? Well, the other option is that it really was some sort of monstrous alien creature, as the witnesses believed. Now... You know, as people who've read my books will know, I do believe in the existence of a genuine UFO phenomenon, but I think it has more paranormal leanings to it than necessarily extraterrestrial, but I still believe it's real. You know, I don't rule out the possibility at all that the Flatwoods monster was some genuinely paranormal, monstrous creature. But if it was, I just find it very eerily coincidental that this British army device was not only the exact same height in description, it was 12 feet high, but it had the same weird arcing lights on it. Uh, it sort of staggered along rather than, you know, sort of walked along, so to speak. The time frame was just a few years apart. So those issues lead me to believe we shouldn't rule out the right. psyop angle, if you like. But, you know, it could just be one of life's weird coincidences, you know, that it was so close to something that was genuinely unexplained. Well, I think you're on to something myself, and, and I think that uh, just an, a really good example of Nick Redfern catching a, a nice pearl. Either that or yeah, it was exactly some sort of... what it was. I mean, this was, again, this was a FOIA document yeah. that really the, the significance of it hadn't been necessarily recognized. I mean, there are things in there that might be of interest to, you know, people who are interested in how religion's being used, because there were stories about how the Allies in the Second World War excuse me, at the end of the Second World War, into the early years of the Cold War, spread stories to the KGB and the Russians about how supposedly the Virgin Mary had been seen following Allied troops, you know, as if to try and impress upon the Allies that God was on the side of the West and not the Russians, you know. So uh, a lot of weird stuff like that in the file that was of less interest to me, but, you know, somebody who researches how religion can be used as a tool of manipulation, they would probably find that aspect of the file interesting. 
there's also the correlation too. Uh, are some of our, our uh, I think, long range rangers and special ops forces in Vietnam use the spade cards uh, yeah. out of a playing card deck, and and evidently the spade in Vietnamese culture is also kind of a, a evil eye or a you know a, yeah. a very negative has a negative connotation. And I, I find that th- th- there's another interesting uh, kind of parallel or correlation there. Yeah, well, I actually mentioned this in the book, this particular file that I also got hold of. It talks about how the Ace of Spades card um, was sort of seen as this, he's like a deathly omen if you find an Ace of Spades card. And so the troops would leave them, you know, where the, where the North Vietnamese would find them and get terrified by them, essentially. So, you know, the, the very fact that PSYOP personnel were already employing, uh, or, you know, in later years were employing um, the, the Ace of Spades image, it makes it more understandable why that might also have been employed you know, in, in Flatwoods as well. But, of course, that's the case that I guess is officially listed as unsolved, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that I actually found a bunch of material on the Flatwoods Monster at the National Archives in Maryland. And what it was, it was a collection of newspaper clippings on the case that the, that, uh, the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Operations had put together. Um, in the days, weeks, and months immediately afterwards. So somebody was clearly taking an interest what the media and like the, the early UFO fanzines of that era were saying about the case, which I find that interesting as well, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't so much a file on the event, it was a file on what the media and the people like us at the time were saying about it, their opinions and ideas on what was actually seen. Oh, they just love to know about people like us. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because, you know, with all this stuff that's going on now with the NSA and things like that, people often forget that one of the easiest ways to to monitor a community like the UFO community is just to go along to conferences and read books because invariably, and even I'm, you know, I, I put my hands up to this. When I uncover stuff, I write about it, you know, so... The easiest way to, to monitor what's going on in the community and the latest revelations is just to what, read everybody's blogs. You know, you don't have to do it underhanded. You just click on, you know, Nick Redfern's blogs and, hey, you know, I've just come back from the National Archives and found this, you know. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, the, the easiest way of, of watching someone is actually one of the most profitable. It's interesting how so much of what we do is really online. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, you know, people's... People say, have they had men in black ever visited you? I said, well, no, because everything I uncover, for the most part, I publish. You know, they've only got to wait six months. They're going to see it in a book anyway. You know? <laughs> well, that, that leads us to a question by Talking Meat Suit, who's one of our recent additions at forum.theparacast.com. And he, he's asking, have you ever caught any flack, Nick, from the powers that be, quote-unquote, for writing any of your books? And I guess you're saying no. Well, no, but the, the main reason is because I use stuff that's legally been released through the Freedom of Information Act. I mean, I castigated in a couple of my books people like Gary McKinnon. They're idiots, you know. If you're gonna, if you're gonna hack into the computer systems of a government agency, you know, you deserve what you get. I don't have any sympathy for people who do that. You know, there's ways and means to get information, and I do it through the Freedom of Information Act, and you know. That's how I acquire information, legally and via, you know, requesting files. And if they surface and they can be released, I quote them in a book, you know. Well, this dude who has come forth to admit that he disclosed to the press this information about the NSA scooping up metadata 
of our telephone calls. Do you think he was being a fool to come forward? Is he looking for glory? What's he looking for? Well, I have no idea, and I think we'll learn more as, as this all goes on. I mean, what, what I would say, you know, is that I'm not sure to what extent, you know, blanket watching everybody actually achieves anything, you know, or the entire audience of or customers of Verizon. I'm not sure that how that can actually achieve anything. Um, you know, I think I think there's still a good argument to be said for, you know, like in the 40s, 50s in the Cold War that raw intelligence gathering data still has a large role to play. You know, it's, I, I kind of view it similar to, you know, just drawing parallels with how wars have been fought over the years. You know, I think there's still there's still room for raw intelligence data rather than, than blanketing everybody. Now, have you ever been, I might as well ask this question, in all the years you've been doing this sort of research and publishing information about possible government documents and stuff like that, has anyone from the government come over to say, hi, Nick, what's going on? No. Well, again, and I think that happens when people, um, you know, are doing stuff that potentially looking into things that are still classified. You know, I, I write about stuff after I've legally obtained it through the Freedom of Information Act. You know, I think that's why possibly, I mean, when the whole Roswell thing kicked off and people like Bill Moore were watched very closely, that was because they were digging into something that was, you know, potentially sensitive, the whole Roswell issue. And, you know, he got these visits and, uh, you know, contacts from military people, insiders and, you know, all these questionable documents and things like that, which I think was a lot of it probably designed to deflect him into other areas, you know, into where he could be safely controlled, etc. Um, but, I mean, when you're doing things through the Freedom of Information Act, you know, there's one literal thing to remember, one simple fact. It's stuff that the government's let you see, and that's what I use. So, you know, that, that's probably why, you know, I don't get, I don't get flax. That brings us to another question. This one's from Burnt State, who's one of our most active uh, posters at forum.theparacast.com. And he says, does the fact that the government spends time researching monsters point to an enormous waste of tax dollars, or is there some <laughs> odd logic at work that says every rock should be looked under and every lake monster sighting investigated because you never know what is either connected to the enemy or will give you potential power over the enemy? What do you think is behind well, government investigations of pyramids and Noah's Ark? Well, that's actually a very good question because, you know, we have this issue where governments do often investigate weird stuff. And I think a lot of the times it is purely and simply because, um, you know, the money is available to do it and one particular project is seen as being relevant. I mean, I'll give you a, a classic example. Um, in Wales, you know, which is right next door to England, where I'm originally from, um, just before the outbreak of the First World War, when it was clear that war was going to break out with Germany, um, the British Royal Navy uh, came up with this idea to train SEALs um, that would be strapped with explosives to basically swim at high speed towards German ships, you know, and then when they would get close to it, uh, the the um, bombs attached to it would be detonated, you know. It was basically a case of the Germans not looking for, for SEALs swimming under the water, but actually looking for another ship so they'd be taken by surprise. I'll tell you um, what, we will be taken by surprise. If we don't do this, they'll cut us off unceremoniously. Nick Redfern joining Gene and Chris. You're in... We're in the Paracast. Yes, we are. 
Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you'd like to listen to GCN programs on the go, I have great news. GCN has created a Droid and iPhone application, and it's free. Just as easy as going to GCNlive.com, click on the banner and download. Before you know it, you'll be listening to your favorite hard-hitting GCN shows, live or on demand, right on your Droid or iPhone, 24-7 and on the go. So download the Droid and iPhone app free by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Thanks again for listening to GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. Hi, this this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. What's safer and cheaper than prescription drugs? Glad you asked. The answer is Renovation Teas. Herbal remedies are much safer and much cheaper than prescription drugs. Taste great, and most importantly, herbal teas are effective and non-addictive. Renovation Tea is especially unique, and here's why. We spent years researching herbs and their beneficial properties. Renovation Teas uses only 100% organic, fair trade herbs. Our teas are blended towards specific ailments and health conditions, such as diabetes, blood pressure, anxiety, libido, detox, and much more. All Renovation Teas are formulated and hand-filled in Arkansas. Take care of yourself naturally, the way Mother Nature intended. Order Renovation Teas at RenovationTea.com or call 870-784-3121. That's 870-784-3121. Renovation Tees. Renovate your health one bag at a time. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. I'm thinking here, ladies and gentlemen, what we could do is package the best of Nick Redfern's Paracast bumpers. What do you think, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, I'm not sure you sell many. (laughs) (laughs) Were you talking about, wait a minute now, the Brits were going to send seals with bombs strapped to them and explode them underneath German warships. Now, I bet you they didn't get permission from the ASPCA or some of the animal (laughs) rights groups. What they did... They actually, because they didn't want the Germans to find out, they undertook like test experiments and tried to train the seals in a, a North Wales lake called Lake Bala. And this was like 1912, 1913, and the war broke out in 1914. So they had all these trained seals and, you know, military people who sort of befriended them, you know, and tried to teach them where they'd have these just wooden planks or logs attached to them, you know, in place, uh, just as dummies instead of the bombs. And they would try to get them to target just little rowing boats out in the lake. Um, But word got out that something weird was going on in the lake. As you can imagine, it would. You know, the locals were wondering what was going on, seeing all these soldiers turn up, you know, releasing seals into the lake and then sort of skulking around after darkness or whatever. Um, And so when the... The project actually collapsed because the SEALs just couldn't be trained well enough. Uh, But when the project collapsed to 
protect the secrecy around this project, when the military left, they started spreading rumours that there were lake monsters in, in Lake Bala. What there actually were were these full-size seals swimming around that they'd let loose and couldn't recapture. So, in other words, sometimes government files on monsters are, are open to do background research to allow them then to create these cover stories. You know, you can only create a cover story about lake monsters if you, if you understand some background on lake monsters. So, collecting data on the Loch Ness Monster and what it allegedly looks like, how it swims, etc., then allows you to create this cover story, which seems plausible. So that's, it's not often that, you know, very often that they're investigating monsters as such. They're looking as a way and a means to use the data, if you like, in some sort of obscure operation like this one. Now, in your particular research, did you get any information on how the government is regarding all these cases? You know, I mean, I think we always need to remember that people think of the government as some unified entity. I mean, one of the things I found, and I think I found this more often in this book than in any other book I've written, is that many of the cases and the things under investigation were undertaken by little groups and projects within agencies. You know, it wasn't like there's a government project to investigate monsters, you know, or an agency that does it. There's nothing like that at all. There are small groups of people within agencies that, you know, may have thought it's a good idea to spread a lake monster story to hide a classified submarine experiment in a lake, which actually did go on. You know, we're looking at think tanks and little projects rather than a unified government agency. And I think sometimes, you know, they took the lead from other agencies. Uh, somebody was successful in doing this or successful in doing that. And so they thought, well, you know, we'll do that and um, you know, see if we can sort of spook the enemy by, by spreading stories of, of monsters on the loose or whatever. That's the important thing, you know, in relation to what the person who asked the question talked about is a lot of the files on monsters aren't necessarily investigations. They're how the monster myths can be exploited. Doesn't that apply to UFOs to some degree, too? Maybe yeah. to release some information to spook people into thinking more is going on than meets the eye or maybe spook foreign powers that we have secret weapons that we don't have? Yeah, I, I think some point during the Cold War, the penny dropped that the entire range of paranormal phenomena could be used for military capital. You know, I talked about that RAND document earlier and how that mentioned that, you know, the military was spreading stories that the Virgin Mary was on the side of the Allies, etc., in the war and in the immediate years in the Cold War, uh, you know, to try and ruffle the feathers of the Russians and prior to that, the Germans. So, you know, we have the Virgin Mary being used in a psychological warfare operation. We have this sort of robotic thing at Flatwoods, potentially. We have the Lake Bala, Lake Monster story, you know, and we have UFO stories where I'm pretty sure that some cases, you know, are used and spread to cover up tests of classified military aircraft. You know, if, if one's inadvertently seen by mistake, you know, you slip a few stories out into the local media about little green men and it all, the original sighting gets buried in this massive, you know, hysteria about aliens invading or whatever. It's interesting you should bring up using religious miracles as a potential um, psyops weapon. I remember talking to a French Canadian guy back in the early 90s named Serge Monast, and he had this just rather shrill warning for everybody that there was this Project Blue Beam and that we had the technology to create a huge sky sized hologram of whatever, you know, name 
fill in the blank for your religious figure, and that using certain uh, modulated microwaves, they could actually have that uh, hologram talk to you and use your name and stuff. Uh, did you ever run across any sort of validation about a program such as uh, Project um, Bluebeam? Well, I mean, Project Bluebeam is sort of like, you know, the ultimate technology where, you know, we're talking about highly sophisticated holograms, you know, to achieve like a, a ruse in the sky, if you like, you know, a fabrication that people will believe is like a second coming. I didn't find anything that advanced. But again, through the Freedom of Information Act, there are actually files that, um, in a strange and roundabout way, actually relate to the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. And again, these are declassified files through the Freedom of Information Act. And they actually reference in there a very obscure plan uh, established by a man named Major General Edward Lansdale. Lansdale was an expert, like a brilliant brain and mind in the field of psychological warfare. And he came up with a plan that sounds like a a very early incarnation of Project Bluebeam. Bear in mind, this was the early 60s, and of course the technology you know, was fairly just primitive back then. But his idea was to essentially approach stealthily the Cuban coastline and have an aircraft with its engine specifically muffled and modified so it would have like a low sound signature and have it flying back and forth through clouds have like a, a loudspeaker, very, very loud modified speaker saying, this is the voice of God. We hereby tell the Cuban people to lay down their weapons and, and renounce Fidel Castro. And they also had an idea that they would send in like a little black painted boat, you know, that wouldn't be seen, but it would have like a large, powerful projector that could project an image of Jesus onto the clouds at the same time that this voice was coming from the clouds. Now, of course, you know, it would have to be, the weather would have to be right, the clouds would have to be there, you'd have to try and ensure that nothing went wrong, that the loudspeaker worked, etc., etc. And ultimately, it wasn't followed through because it was just seen as, as too bizarre, you know, even for the PSYOPs people. But when you look at the basic outline of what was planned by Lansdale, namely to, you know, fabricate an image of Jesus in the sky with an attendant, you know, audio voice, saying, you know, lay down your arms and follow me, so to speak. The premise, if you like, is the same. We're just not talking about any sort of advanced technology, but because it was so primitive, it was like, there's just no way we're going to get away with this, you know, and it was cancelled. But, but again, that's in the official files. You know, does it validate the idea of Project Bluebeam? Well, no, it doesn't. But you could make the argument that if something like that was going on 50 years ago, is something still being addressed along similar lines today? But in a highly more more highly advanced fashion, you know. Yeah, I've, I've heard uh, some pretty informed uh, sources tell me that we had developed and utilized and actually used in the field during Desert Storm some very sophisticated acoustic well, uh, psychological weapons uh, platforms that uh, literally drove some of the frontline troops of the Iraqis uh, crazy. And, and the footage of them coming out and, and, and just hugging the, the feet of, of Marines and, and uh, Army personnel, uh, <laughs> that wasn't by accident that we actually elicited that sort of response from these troops. Huh. Well, one of the things, I mean, I can, which I mentioned in the book in Monster Files, uh, I mean, I know you'll know the name of Gabe Valdez. Gabe um, was a New Mexico State Police officer in the 70s who was heavily involved in studying New Mexico-based cattle mutilation events. We'll tell our listeners more about who that guy is and about what he did in our next segment with Gene, Chris, 
I'm the one, I'm the only, Nick Redfern. You're in the Paracast. Attack of the Rockoids has been well received by critics and readers alike. It's a thrill a minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Hi, this is Gary Cooper with Midas Resources Gold and Silver. Don't be surprised when the global elite confiscates money from your bank account one day. They have already very clearly telling you that they're going to do it. With what just happened in Cyprus serving as a blueprint for future bank bailouts, if you are concerned about keeping your money, why not consider storing your wealth in gold and silver? Call me, Gary Cooper, at 1-800-686-2237, extension 130. Together, we'll discuss your options of buying gold and silver. Again, the global elite have plans for your money and it doesn't include you. So call me, Gary Cooper, at 1-800-686-2237, extension 130, and I will send you a booklet with 10 reasons why gold and silver could be right for you. Again, don't get caught with money in your account when the next bank bailout hits. Call me, Gary Cooper, at 1-800-686-2237, extension 130. What's safer and cheaper than prescription drugs? Glad you asked. The answer is Renovation Teas. Herbal remedies are much safer and much cheaper than prescription drugs. Taste great, and most importantly, herbal teas are effective and non-addictive. Renovation Tea is especially unique, and here's why. We spent years researching herbs and their beneficial properties. Renovation Teas uses only 100% organic, fair trade herbs. Our teas are blended towards specific ailments and health conditions, such as diabetes, blood pressure, anxiety, libido, detox, and much more. All Renovation Teas are formulated and hand-filled in Arkansas. Take care of yourself naturally, the way Mother Nature intended. Order Renovation Teas at RenovationTea.com or call 870-784-3121. That's 870-784-3121. Renovation Tees. Renovate your health one bag at a time. (laughs) Are you still a traditional smoker? Now experience a new lifestyle and try vaping with e-cigarettes by LeSig. Imagine no ashes, stains, nasty smell, or coughing and hacking. With LeSig e-cigarettes revolutionary microelectronic technology, rechargeable battery, and unique replaceable cartridge, you'll get all the benefits and satisfaction of smoking without the hazards. Choose your taste from a wide variety of our new American-made vaporeant e-liquids at LeSig.com. And LeSig smokes the competition by serving thousands of worldwide customers with real people customer service fast free same day shipping and a 30 
30-day warranty and satisfaction guarantee. So are you ready for a new vaping lifestyle? Then call 870-518-4307. That's 870-518-4307. Or visit LeSig.com, spelled L-E-C-I-G.com. LeSig e-cigarettes for today's modern smoker. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Yes, we'll have both Chris and Nick do the recording, the best of the Paracast bumpers. Nick, you started a response. We had to do that break, but now you can pick up on it. Yeah, I was just talking about Gabe Valdez, a New Mexico State police officer who was heavily involved in investigating cattle mutilations in New Mexico in the mid to late 1970s. And um, I interviewed or met with Gabe in late 2009. Me and Greg Bishop were driving up to a, a conference up in Angel Fire, New Mexico, and Greg was good friends with Gabe, who died a year or two ago. And so Greg phoned me up and said, hey, you know, you want to meet for lunch? Uh, we're stopping off somewhere on the way through. So we, we met with Gabe in Albuquerque and had lunch with him. And he told a really interesting story about how he'd been told by military personnel that... The military, for some bizarre reasons, have been using holographic technology to create imagery of Bigfoot-type creatures. And the answer that Gabe got as to why this was being done was because it was supposedly to frighten superstitious people from sort of hanging around military bases if you could project suddenly this eight-foot-tall, hairy, glowing-eyed monster, you know, in their immediate vicinity and have them sort of haul ass out of there. That was the idea. And I thought, sort of found this fascinating, you know, that I was having lunch sat opposite a highly respected New Mexico State Police officer talking about the military creating holograms of Bigfoot as almost like a, like a paranormal watchdog or guard dog, if, if you like. Uh, right. Well, highly sophisticated, technological rather than paranormal, I should say. Yeah. Uh, but it was sort of a very strange story, but, you know, it kind of, I guess, ties in with using, you know, holograms and and the paranormal as a means to, you know, provoke like a psychological response. Well, the Hickory Apache who live around the Dulce area, that's the um, reservation, pretty much surrounds Dulce there. Uh, there are a lot of Bigfoot sightings in the area, have been for decades. So that, that would be a perfect uh, psychological, uh, you know, potential tool to use. And since we're on the subject of Bigfoot, uh, the more amazing things that I found fascinating in your book was, number one, some of the revelations about Tom Slick, the famous uh, uh, well-to-do... Uh, I think he was a Texas oil man who uh, funded uh, several very high-profile abominable snowman hunts back in the, I think, what, 50s and 60s, if I remember correctly, yeah. and and his ties to the American intelligence community. Uh, you want to address that a little bit? Uh, I found that uh, very fascinating. I had no clue. Well, yeah, Tom Slick um, was a, a millionaire oil man. And his, his father, uh, Tom Slick Sr., was, you know, made a massive fortune. Of course, when he died, Tom and um, his, his siblings, they, they inherited, you know, a vast fortune. And so Tom Slick really didn't have to work. But he was one of these people who, you know, invested money here and there in different projects and essentially became, you know, a multimillionaire through 
being a very shrewd businessman. He had a, a deep fascination for cryptozoology, and he travelled all over the world, you know, investigating things. Uh, before his death in the early 60s, he, um, he travelled around the US investigating Bigfoot. Um, but he, one of his main areas of interest was the abominable snowman, uh, or the Yeti, as it's called, which is, you know, reported in the Himalayas, Tibet, etc. And um, even reports in parts of China, in the forests of China and India. Now, in the mid to late 50s, Tom Slick uh, went on a number of expeditions and also sponsored and organized several as well to look for the Yeti. Now, what's interesting is that this was at the very time when there was a great deal of turmoil between the people of Tibet and the people of China. You know, there was, it was almost on the on the verge of, of warfare break, breaking out. The, mil the US military and the British military at the time were deeply concerned, you know, that hostilities were going to break out. And so they needed raw intelligence data at a ground level, if you like, kind of what I was talking about earlier, you know, about having sort of raw intelligence gathering techniques. So they wanted people in place who could collect information and report back on, you know, what was being said in Tibet and what was being said in China and, and what was going down. So they needed someone who was like a definitive player, you know, knew people around town who knew how to get hooked up and plugged in with the right people, etc. And so they reportedly chose Tom Slick. And although Tom Slick's Yeti hunts were legitimate, you know, he did have a real deep passion for it and was looking for the Yeti, there are very strong indications that he was also doing a little bit of sort of sly spying on the Chinese at the same time. And if questioned, you know, he could legitimately say, well, you know, sorry, guys, I'm just in the area looking for the Yeti. But it acted as a good cover. So in other words, he was doing legitimate monster hunting research, but he had another agenda as well. And he was actually tied in with a number of well-to-do people. He had a, a deep connection uh, with one of the um, businesses he was involved with, with the, uh, with the Bush family, uh, even George Bush Sr. Um, he was also a very close friend with Howard Hughes, who was deeply plugged into the CIA. So, you know, we've got somebody with all these deep, strong connections who was in the right area at the right time, who was like a definitive player and knew everybody everywhere there was a, a plausible cover story that it was just there hunting monsters so again you know this demonstrates how what looks like you know the government investigating monsters is actually something very different where the monster angle is sort of tangential to a greater goal if you like so do you feel some of the cases that maybe you unearthed this way are meant to have something that was not related to monsters Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I talk about uh, a number of cases in the book where, you know, the, the monster angle was just a, a byproduct or it was used, as I said, as a, as a convenient cover story. And, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the creatures don't exist, but I think sometimes the agencies didn't really care. You know, I don't think the CIA, that when Tom Slick was in, in Tibet, I, I honestly don't think the CIA could have cared less if the Yeti really existed but they did deeply care about the fact that it was a legend that could be used as a cover. You know, I would be very surprised if there are CIA files on an actual search for a Yeti. You know, that would, I'd be amazed. I'd be pleased, but I'd be amazed. And I think it's doubtful. But, you know, one day maybe we'll get to see the hard evidence, you know, as it relates to Tom Slick's involvement and, and how far it actually went. So how then do you separate the possible government disinformation from what appears to be genuine sightings of strange creatures? Well, I would have to be honest with you and say very carefully, because 
it's one of these situations where when you're dealing with files that have officially surfaced decades later, you know, maybe 40, 50 years in some cases, most of the people are probably dead and long gone. So it's difficult to really determine anything with any solid degree. That's why the Flatwoods thing is such an enigma because, you know, it could go either way still even now, I think, even though I, you know, I personally do think the PSYOP angle is probably the correct one. But, you, you know, you have to have an open mind. And, you know, for me, I don't find it disappointing if, if a government agency has exploited a monster myth to hide something else. I find it fascinating. And it doesn't, for me, negate the possibility of a real creature existing. So I think, you know, we need to be open-minded and not get caught up with wanting to, it to be this or wanting it to be that. That's, that's a, something I've always tried to avoid, is wanting to, be, you know, not to quote the X-Files, but wanting to believe in something. I just go where the data leads me, and if it leads to a real creature, that's amazing. If it leads to some bizarre project, well, in its own way, that's amazing too. Before we get too bizarre, this is the bizarre Gene Steinberg with the sometimes bizarre... Chris O'Brien and the always eternally bizarre Nick Redfern. You're in. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats i can't even list them download now to see if graphic converter is good for you like one and a half million other users guess what you could save money when you buy graphic converter use the coupon code night owl use the coupon code night owl to get a special price for graphic converter go to lemkesoft.com that's l-e-m-k-e soft.com lemkesoft.com l-e-m-k-e soft.com In the last two years alone, the U.S. has seen huge losses to our food supply. In 2011, storms and floods raged across the U.S., costing us $20 billion in lost crops alone. In 2012, we saw the largest drought in the country in more than 50 years. You may think out of sight, out of mind, and so you don't think you will be affected. The fact is, you are. We all are. Food shortages drive prices up for everyone. You might not be able to control Mother Nature, but you can control your food prices by freezing the cost and availability of your food supply with eFoods Direct. Be prepared before you need it. With nutrient-dense food, you can store for up to 25 years. You can hope for the best, but hope won't feed you. Do what I've done and get your own supply of the best storable foods out there from eFoods Direct. Call 800-409-5633 or visit them on the web at eFoodsDirect.com forward slash Alex and check out their spring specials. Again, that number is 800 409 or on the web at efoodsdirect.com forward slash Alex. You can bet your life on efoodsdirect. 
Your home alarm works after an intruder is inside your home, but real home security begins before intruders enter. Burglaries and home invasions are at an all-time high, and crime is skyrocketing in rural and suburban areas. 85% of break-ins are through a door, and police response is often greater than 20 minutes. You can't afford to wait that long. Stop burglars with police-tested and recommended Easy Armor from Armor Concepts. Easy Armor keeps intruders out. It's barely visible and installs easily. Easy Armor reinforces a door's weak points, comes in three colors, and is guaranteed to stop kick-ins. Get Easy Armor now and get peace of mind. Order by calling 888-58-ARMOR. That's 888-582-7667. Or go to easyarmor.net, spelled E-Z-A-R-M-O-R.net. Special offer only available to GCN listeners. Ask about it when you call for your Easy Armor today from Armor Concepts. Ultimate door security made easy. Big business has discovered the preparedness market, and that makes it difficult to know where to go and who to trust. MyPatriotSupply.com is owned and operated by patriots just like you. Has the best prices on storable food, non-GMO seeds, water filtration devices, home canning equipment, survival and self-reliance books, and more. MyPatriotSupply.com has old-fashioned values and the absolute best customer service in the industry. Look for the deal of the day, unique affordable service. Survival supplies that fit anyone's budget. Get same day shipping on all orders and free shipping on orders over $49. Call 866 229 0927. 866 229 0927. Or visit mypatriotsupply.com for emergency preparedness, self reliance, and food independence. Shop with a name you know and a name you can trust. Before it's time to survive, it's time to prepare. Mypatriotsupply.com. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast. What was that? Nick's afraid to say he was possessed briefly. Yeah, that was me being possessed. I haven't got the swiveling head yet, but I might puke up some pea soup in a minute. I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) if you're eating dinner right now, we suggest that you... Basically, stop, put the forks and fingers and the knives down, and the spoons especially, and just sit back and listen. This stuff gets pretty grisly. Since we're on the subject of Bigfoot, probably the most fascinating Bigfoot uh, part, at least to me from your book, was the, the wonderful stories and rumors surrounding the aftermath of the eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980. You know, I think some of us out there in the listening audience have heard, you know, little hints and and, and rumors of uh, Bigfoot bodies being recovered by the government. You look at this uh, subject and came up with some pretty surprising details uh, on some of the rumors. So you care to address those? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, Mount St. Helens, I mean, it erupted in May 1980. You know, it had this massive explosion that just sort of devastated the, the entire surrounding area. Uh, it was actually sort of May 18th. When the mountain exploded, the debris was shown to have actually been sort of crumbling and falling at no less than 150 miles an hour. That's how the speed it was blasted out at. And it created this sort of huge volcanic ash, uh, almost like a mushroom cloud that reached 80,000 feet. And it flattened an area something like 19 by, I think it was 19 by 23 miles, I think, was the actual distance. and something in, like Including the notorious yeah, right, Ape Canyon. Canyon. Yeah. Exactly, and almost 60 people died who decided, you know, they weren't going to leave their homes. Now, what we do know 
is that roughly 5,000 deer were killed, uh, more than 1,000 elk, and somewhere in the region of 12 million salmon. So a lot of the local known and identified animal population perished when mountain elephants exploded. Now, you mentioned Ape Canyon, which is, um, a fa- relates to a famous case in the 1920s where there were sort of these hostile Bigfoot reportedly on the loose and attacking people even. If Bigfoot is a real flesh and blood animal, and was living in the vicinity of Mount St. Helens, or actually on Mount St. Helens, then arguably some of those would probably have been killed as well. And a number of researchers over the years have been approached by military people or claiming to be military people saying, you know, I was involved or had awareness of how in the immediate aftermath when they were checking the mountain out, you know, and finding bodies of dead deer and things like that. The soldiers also stumbled upon a number of burned and dead bodies and in some cases like critically injured Bigfoot. And there are stories about them being sort of airlifted out by things like double rotor Chinook helicopters and, you know, in sort of huge nets, powerful nets and taken to who knows where. And from there, the stories have sort of been expanded into autopsies of Bigfoot at, at military bases and that kind of thing. As I point out in the book, a lot of the material I use is freedom of information documentation. This chapter is solely based upon researchers whose words I've quoted or, you know, who I've interviewed um, and where they've spoken to uh, off-the-record sources, if you like, military people who've made these claims. So, unfortunately, you know, we don't have a definitive smoking gun in the form of an official document that confirms anybody was looking for Bigfoot or anything was found. What we have are military people who, thus far at least, haven't been willing to go on the record. And, uh, you know, I point that out. I think it's important to stress that. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily negate the stories. It just means we've got to sort of dig harder to try and find some form of verification. But admittedly, you know, the, the very fact that five or six researchers across three decades have received similar stories but not identical ones, for me, is a good point to the, you know, where the smoke, sometimes there really is fire. Well, one of the interesting details was in one uh, of these alleged, I guess, rumors or or, uh, off-the-record comments, a Bigfoot was actually involved with one of the recovery teams, uh, according to this particular story. Do you want to... Yeah, this is really bizarre because it talks about, you know, the Bigfoot, I guess, not being just like an unknown ape, but something that was secretly known of by the military. And the story is that, you know, one of these creatures that survived, possibly in in injured form to a degree, actually sort of helped the recovery team by identifying where these injured Bigfoot were by sort of using like a distress call and, and getting a reply back and then following the cries to the area and leading the military personnel and the medical teams to where these injured Bigfoot were and then, you know, ferrying them out the area. So, you know, if that's not a hoax or a exaggeration or a psyop or whatever, you know, it's it suggests that Bigfoot is more than just a flesh and blood ape, which which ironically I actually believe it is. I think there are a lot of weird paranormal aspects to Bigfoot. I don't think it's just the equivalent of like a an African gorilla, a mountain gorilla. I think it's it's something far weirder than that. So, you know, who knows, maybe there has been some sort of collusion or, you know, contact in some form. One of our questioners is interested. Uh, he heard you on another show, and, and you mentioned kind of a multidimensional aspect that you think might yeah. be there. We've talked about this with you in the past, but well, what's your thinking on that now well, that we're talking about that? I don't consider 
me, myself, a cryptozoologist, I would consider myself a 14 who has a deep interest in cryptozoology, which is a big difference. Most mainstream cryptozoologists will tell you honestly that they're looking for unknown animals or, you know, possibly creatures that science believes has become extinct but that maybe haven't, things like that. For me, you know, I'm quite comfortable including in cryptozoology animals that seem far weirder than just flesh and blood. Now, there are a number of reports of Bigfoot. Now, granted, it's not like 70, 80%. It's probably 7 or 8%. And most researchers of Bigfoot, if they're honest with themselves and everybody else, they will have at least a few reports like this on file where somebody has seen a Bigfoot and it's been reported at the same time and same location as weird lights in the sky or UFOs or the witness of the Bigfoot has got a visit from a man in black type character or the creature itself has like vanished in a flash of light or just literally vanished in like a green fog as some people have talked about. Because Bigfoot is so definitively elusive and always evades capture and bullets never seem to affect it, I kind of wonder if maybe Bigfoot is something that is temporarily passing through our world. That's why it's so, you know, it has this here one minute, gone the next flavor to it, if you like. And I think, you know, maybe it uses wormholes and, and dimensions and things like that. And maybe that would explain why military agencies are interested. Perhaps the interest is less based around Bigfoot, but more around trying to understand how these wormholes could be accessed for military gain. I think there's a could it sounds bizarre and controversial, but you know, I don't care about dealing with bizarre and <laughs> controversial <laughs> subjects, you know. Hey, it's the Paracast. Hi, I'm yeah. bizarre, he's controversial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean for me, you know, I don't worry about what people think of me. I, you know, I don't have no reputation to lose, you know. So for me, I, I actually think there is something to this that Bigfoot could be something that he potentially exists in another reality and temporarily appears in ours. And, of course, understanding how that could occur would be a major development for any military agency. And so, again, I think the military could be less interested in Bigfoot, but more interested in its capabilities. Well, that also brings up that classic case of uh, a world-class physicist up at Sherman Ranch or the Skinwalker Ranch yeah. observing a portal opening up in the air and what appeared to be a large, oversized humanoid form crawling out of this portal in the air. Yeah, the skinwalker ranch for me sort of typifies why I, I do believe in these portals and doorways potentially being stationary in certain areas or temporarily stationary because we find certain places all around the world that seem to be hot spots for a wide range of different phenomena that seemingly appear unconnected but they're all in one place. I mean, the Canna Chase Forest and woods where, near where I grew up in central England, they're like a hotbed for UFOs, Bigfoot, werewolf-type creatures, you know, which you could possibly apply as skinwalkers, phantom-like ghostly creatures, ghostly black dogs, paranormal large black cats looking like sort of like a black leopard but vanishing in the blink of an eye. And they're all in this one area of forest called the Canna Chase. And you can find places like this, like the Skinwalker Ranch, all around the world that seem to be like magnets for weirdness. And, and I think there's something to the idea that, you know, perhaps these stationary areas are slightly equivalent to jumping on a paranormal equivalent of the New York subway or the London Underground, you know, and then getting off at another stop and getting back on and jumping off again or whatever. That's even better than using Scotty's transporter. We have Nick Redfern. The book is called Monster Files. With Gene and Chris, you're in The Paracast! <laughs> America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network.
Whether it's personal mail, whether it's business email, you want reliable, dependable delivery, freedom from spam, freedom from viruses. Well, Polaris Mail offers professional email hosting services for your personal or small business use. Each account uses 25 gigabytes of storage, an easy-to-use webmail interface, and full mobile sync. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial at PolarisMail.com, PolarisMail.com. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. Introducing a 30-day emergency food supply for only $99. At 30dayfoodsupply.com, you can purchase Oregon Trail Foods' one-month supply of high-quality, nutritious, and healthy emergency meals for less than $100. These vegetarian meals are all-natural, non-GMO, high in carbs and protein, and are packed with oxygen absorbers in Mylar pouches. They take up to 70% less space than number 10 cans, have a 20-year shelf life, and huge portions, over twice the serving size of some competitors' meals. Oregon Trail Foods and 30dayfoodsupply.com keep prices low by buying direct from producers in Oregon and then pass the savings on to you. Purchase a 30-day, 90-serving emergency food supply for only $99 this month and $10 ships your entire order to the lower 48. Call 541-673-6666 or visit 30dayfoodsupply.com where they make preparedness affordable. 30dayfoodsupply.com. Got it? Get it. Go to 30dayfoodsupply.com. The government's Department of Homeland Security is buying up loads of ammo. At the same time, they're restricting civilians' rights to own and purchase firearms. Can you put two and two together? Infidel Body Armor can stop every round, including hollow points and 308 sniper rounds. Is reasonably priced and fully legal. But for how long? Go to InfidelBodyArmor.com, spelled I-N-F-I-D-E-L, BodyArmor.com. Infidel Body Armor just won't quit. We the people grow cotton, we fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit, then carting to a private bank, having it led back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Hi, Ted Anderson. I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. If you want to approach companies with your invention, the first step is to secure your patent rights. We are Russ Weinzimmer & Associates, a national law firm dedicated to helping you get strong protection for your invention. Already selling a product based on your invention? There may still be time to lock in your rights. Just call us at 800-621-3654 for your confidential free consultation. Or visit StrategicPatentLaw.com. That's StrategicPatentLaw.com. 
Attention preppers. Think you've got everything? Think again. You need rescue tape. The ultimate emergency repair tape. Used by the U.S. Army on trucks and tanks. As part of their battle damage repair kit. Rescue tape is 20 times stronger than duct tape. Rescue tape repairs leaky pipes and hoses up to 500 degrees. Waterproofs electrical connections. And even works right over oily, dirty surfaces. Rescue tape belongs in every prepper's survival kit. Bug out bag. And emergency kit. Get rescued. Or just get stuck. Learn more at rescuetape.com. Hello, this is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. It is astounding how bizarre this show gets <laughs> when we have Nick Redfern kind of joining us here to talk about all sorts of bizarre things going on, I have to tell you. I used to live in a bizarre place. Bizarre's good. I still do, actually, but it's a different bizarre place. All right. Well, there you go. We've got more questions from our audience. Well, well Nick, you, you bring it out in people. We've answered a bunch of them. But here's one that's it's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it. This comes from Spooky Mulder, who's been a Paracast forum poster for a couple of years. And he says, Nick, what is your slant on the checkered shirt phenomenon which is being reported on beans from Bigfoot to the Grinning Man. Now, that's news to me. You want to fill us in? What's he talking about? Yeah, it's, it's actually a very weird phenomenon. that Somebody really should do like a definitive paper on it. But throughout the years, and John Keel found a number of these cases. I mean, that's how far it stretches back. There are a lot of reports that seemingly nobody really puts the, the pieces together and realizes, but, you know, some people like, you, like Spooky do. And John Keel did that certain phenomena, you know, humanoid-type creatures, whether it's uh, Bigfoot-type creatures occasionally, hairy wild men, or just sort of creatures that look human that seem paranormal, they're often reported wearing, like, check shirts. <laughs> I know it sounds totally bizarre, but if you Google sort of check shirts and paranormal phenomena, you actually find this trend where they pop up wearing check shirts, you know, and it almost sounds like some sort of weird trickster-type angle, you know, that's uh, just play and screw around with people's minds by wearing check shirts and see who notices it and who gets obsessed by it and, you know, devotes their life to it or whatever, you know, and sort of manipulated by the trickster. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've never actually investigated it, but I've read about it. And it's one of these things where, you know, it almost defies explanation or description. And the best I can say is, is to me, it does sound like some weird and bizarre trickster-like trick you know let's just let's just screw around with the natives and you know have one of these characters pop up in a check shirt every so often it's almost it's kind of reminds me of the uh the shadow uh shadow men mm. that wear hats that wear fedoras well, <laughs> yeah i mean that, I, I sometimes think that there's like a, a crossover between the man in black and the shadow people you know sometimes the man in black do seem like flesh and blood people other times you know they have this sort of occult aspect to them and then on the other side, you have the more insubstantial, sort of ethereal shadow people. It's, like, it's almost like it appears in three forms, kind of like, um, like an ethereal, insubstantial form, then an occult form, then a fully flesh and blood human, as if it's, you know, sort of mutating or changing. And, you know, kind of like, you know, you can have water, it can be in the form of a gas in steam, you know, it can be a liquid, it can be a solid in the form of ice, you know, maybe it's all one entity, you know, in different forms of existence, possibly. 
have a, a question from a first-time poster. I'm I'm pretty uh, sure this might be one of the first times someone has actually posted their first time asking a question of a guest. This one comes from OS Prime, who signed up uh, at forum.theparacast.com on Sunday. And he says, Nick, with all the documents and reports the government, U.S., foreign, and otherwise, seem to have referring to all these monsters and creatures, do you know of any country, state, city, or province that might have an actual protocol on how to handle an appearance or an attack by one of these cuddly creatures? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually I'm not aware of any sort of area or province that you know has guidelines in place. But I mean, Frank, I'll give you a, a good example. It's again through the Freedom of Information Act. When Tom Slick um, was in in Tibet in the late 1950s, the State Department, the U.S. State Department, you know, had an office in Tibet. And they actually relayed throughout their office and to various agencies guidelines that have been laid down by the, the people of Tibet, which should be adhered to in the event that somebody goes on a yeti hunt. And the documents talk about that, you know, if somebody's allowed in the country in Tibet and, you know, they want to go on a yeti hunt, they have to sign like a document saying they won't shoot to, to kill it. And if they take any photographs, the pictures have to be handed over to the Tibetan government immediately for study. And this is all in the U.S. State Department documents. I actually reproduce one of the documents in the book in a photograph form. And it's sort of fascinating that this legislation not only existed, but, you know, the U.S. government was helping the Tibetan government to you know, keep these guidelines in, in place and warning people like Tom Slick, you know, if you find one of these, you will not shoot it, you know, otherwise there's going to be hell to pay. But I guess that is sort of pretty much, you know, along the lines of what the question was asking. It doesn't sort of relate to what would happen if a person got attacked, but it does relate to what would happen to a person if they tried to kill one of these creatures, which I guess would be on the endangered species list one day, so. Yeah, I, I would think you would find these types of protocols it would probably be more apt to find them in, in a um, an Asian country, possibly South America. So that was a good question for a first-time poster, I, I must say. Yeah. This is going back to our one of our newer posters, Talking Meat Suit, who used to be known as Yeti Turds for Sale, I think. Uh, <laughs> and I think we all understand why he changed that name. <laughs> you know, there's no secret about it. Memorable, you know, you won't forget it. <laughs> uh, that's true. Well, I think this is almost an unfair question. Uh, I know all your books are like babies, you love them all, but what book are you least proud of, and what book are you most proud of? And you're going to have to probably think well, that, about that, that for a question. No, that's a very good question. I think my, my favorite book is one I did last year. It's called Wild Man. And that's a study of the very little-known phenomenon of Bigfoot in Britain. The reason I wrote it was because when I grew up, the area in central England where I grew up as a kid, very heavily forested, you had a, a famous legend of a creature known as the Man Monkey, which was sort of this large chimpanzee-like semi-human, primitive human ape-type creature that reportedly haunted an old bridge that crossed a, an equally old canal in central England. And of course, bridges, you know, are tied with paranormal phenomena all around the world. It's just part of our psyche and our culture. It fascinated me, this particular story. The more I dug into it, the more I found more and more reports of Bigfoot-type creatures in Britain. And that's one of my sort of pet subjects. And I finally wrote a full-length book on it, about 300 pages long, which came out last year called Wildman. That was the one book I always wanted to do. So that was probably the 
the favourite book of mine. You know, you can always sort of look, I guess it's like, it's like a band, you know, you always want to go back and make a change to the guitar solo or the drum sound, you know. I think probably the least favourite of mine was a book I wrote in 1999, which was called Cosmic Crashes. And that was a study of what we might call British Roswells. And, it, and I, I wrote it road trip style of sort of going around the UK, traveling to re- alleged crash sites and interviewing people. And the problem with the book, from my perspective, looking back with hindsight now, is that it was too belief-driven. You know, I sort of wanted, I wrote it, it was clear, you know, my mindset back then was still in the extraterrestrial mode and I wanted that to have been a British Roswell. And I should have been more open-minded into the idea of, you know, was a crash UFO story created to hide a crash of a classified British military aircraft or, you know, was it just a hoax or whatever? I was too caught up in the the wanting to believe angle and it wasn't balanced enough. So it wasn't so much I don't like the book. With hindsight, I should have written it in a, you know, a more balanced fashion. Huh, interesting, yeah, because you are very, very, you're even keeled and very objective uh, in your writing. Well, I try to be, but I mean, I recognize that in that one I wasn't because, you know, I, I did get too wrapped up. I mean, sometimes, when I, because I'm balanced, people say, oh, you're fence-sitting. Well, I'm not, you know, it's like if people ask me, like Flatwoods, I, I honestly can't give you a straight answer as to whether it was a real creature or a psyop. You know, I can give my opinion that I think the psyop is more likely, but to, for me to stamp my feet and say, it was a psyop, you know, that's stupid. I can't do that because, yeah. you know, there isn't enough data in. And I think sometimes the will and the want to believe in something crosses the line where people yeah. do say, well, this is, this is the answer. It's got to be, you know, and, and that's yeah. the mistake I made with Cosmic Crashes. So. Yeah, it slants our thinking and kind of shades our conclusions. Yeah, you know, good I, question. I've never yeah. asked that question before. So a good well, back to the Flatwoods monster. Since we haven't seen it again, perhaps it was a 12-foot alien that just didn't find West Virginia girls very attractive or something. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Is this kind of like the one-off cases where you have one particular event, it is never repeated again, and that's an interesting question to even pursue, which is, do you think that when you have events that are not repeated they have a lesser or greater chance of being authentic. Now, I guess from a scientific point of view, that goes against the grain, because scientists want to replicate everything. They want to show that the phenomenon is repeatable somehow, somewhere, and therefore, if they could repeat the phenomenon, they could demonstrate their explanation. But when you get a one-off event, you know, all bets are off, ladies and gentlemen. You never know what caused them unless you have some more evidence. And sometimes just the evidence of your eyes may not be sufficient. And so it goes. We have Nick Redfern. The book is Monster Files. And we have the monster Chris O'Brien with... And the not-so-monstrous Gene Steinberg, because you're in... The Paracast. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. 
Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you'd like to listen to GCN programs on the go, I have great news. GCN has created a Droid and iPhone application, and it's free. Just as easy as going to GCNlive.com, click on the banner, and download. Before you know it, you'll be listening to your favorite hard-hitting GCN shows, live or on demand, right on your Droid or iPhone, 24-7 and on the go. So download the Droid and iPhone app free by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Thanks again for listening to GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit and carting to a private bank, having it lent back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. It's time to prepare for an uncertain future at the Midwest Self-Reliance Festival, June 28th, 29th, and 30th at the Valair Ballroom in Des Moines. Tickets are only $6 per day or $12 for a three-day pass. Speakers include Jackie Clay of Backwoods Home Magazine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy of Doom and Bloom, and Jack Spearco of The Survival Podcast. There's 100 free conceal and handgun classes each day, and you'll gain valuable knowledge as you learn how to prepare with beekeeping, soap making, canning supplies, cooking with solar, gold and silver, seed banks, and water purification. There's even a free apple seed shoot for the kids. Check out the Longevity booth and the health product line with pharmacist Keith Abel speaking about natural, healthy living. The Midwest Self-Reliance Festival, June 28th, 29th, and 30th in Des Moines, Iowa. Presented by My Patriot Supply and sponsored by Genesis Communications Network. Visit ValairBallroom.com for tickets and find us on Facebook at the Midwest Self-Reliance Festival. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Shall I say it? A monster of a show. Nick Redfern joining Gene and Chris. And Nick, of course, is kind of sending me weird vibes for using that phrase, a monster of a show. Bombarding you with microwaves via my black helicopter. Yeah, you're going to get some emails on that joke, Gene. That is not a joke, ladies and gentlemen. I am being perfectly serious. I never joke. That's like the remark from one of the James Bond movies, I never joke with 007. Right. Well, you got to admit, Gene, Nick is one of our best and, and most popular guests. And, and boy, I can tell you, Nick, I have more fun with when you when I have a book of yours in my hand and get a chance to talk to you later about it. You, you amaze me, man, that you are able to uncover such such just really good stuff. And my hat's off to you. I mean, you're a real uh, inspiration, I think, for aspiring writers out there. Okay, so we had a question on the table in our last segment, Nick, and that is the one-off event. And we can mention an example being, of course, Flatwoods Monster. The one-off event, do you think it holds a lesser or greater chance of having some value of being true? Well, I actually do think it stands a greater chance because when, when something becomes part of popular culture and belief systems develop, sometimes, you know, people get carried away and see things that aren't necessarily there. Or, you know, if they expect to see an alien, people expect to see an alien today. Everybody's got that imagery in their head of, like, the large head and the black eyes. 
you know. So I think something that's totally different and that doesn't go along with what's in popular culture and is never seen again, you know, I actually think there is a good argument to be made that that was genuine because it isn't, you know, part of the -the run-of-the-mill thing that everybody expects it to be. It's, It's totally off the walls. That leads me to another question. Uh, this one's from Polterwurst, who's a longtime poster at forum.theparacast.com. It says, uh, Nick, what do you think might account for the werewolf myth persisting probably from prehistoric times all the way through the late, through the late, the Middle Ages, when there was a regular werewolf craze, second only to the witch craze, uh, well into the 1800s? And, He also has a little postscript here. He says that Nick and Chris, I recently found a strange sentence while Googling the term Wendigo, and the sentence is, the creature could only be seen if it faced the witness head on because it was so thin that it could not be seen from the side. And he says, this reminds me a lot of Chris's description, my description of beings that looked like they were two-dimensional, which I've described on the show before. Do you have any more stories or reports with that two-dimensional and, I guess, high strange aspect? Well, actually, I do have one. I don't talk about this in the book, but I do talk about it in that book I mentioned uh, just now, Wildman, um, where a friend of mine, John Downs, who's one of Britain's most well-known cryptozoologists, he had an experience with, like, a classic British Bigfoot, for want of a better term, in 2003 in an area of woodland uh, called Bowland Lake in the north of England. And what was interesting is that John said from the side it looked like a classic Bigfoot, like a large lumbering thing charging through the woods. But as it ran, it wasn't even two-dimensional, it was one-dimensional, like a shadow. There was just literally no substance, almost like something was, you know, projected onto the trees and, you know, the shadow was picked up on the trees. But he said it was just like a solid black form, but it literally had no depth to it. It was almost like, a imagine a shadow running along where you could see the shadow on both sides, but it was totally one-dimensional, like a, you know, a, a plank of thin wood or paper or whatever. Hmm. Well, we have a couple of questions that are very similar. One is, again, from Polterwurst, and the other is from our former moderator, Angel of Lauren, who is, calls himself our friendly skeptic. Polterwurst wants to know if you have a favorite monster, and uh, Angela wants to know what your favorite topic is that you've covered, and which one is your favorite. Well, I would have to say my, my favorite uh, monster is probably a pretty obscure one. It's, it's known as the Houston Batman and it kind of sounds like Owlman, which it actually is. But this was the, uh, excuse me, a Mothman, I mean. Um, the Owlman's a, a similar creature in England. But the Mothman sightings, which affected um, the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, occurred in the mid-60s and came to their height in 1967. Well, uh, 15 years before, in the city of Houston, Texas, there was a report that made the newspapers of a creature that was, became known as the Houston Batman. And it was seen by several people late one night, and it was described as like a large man-like creature that was seen sort of stooped in a large tree. And it had like a humanoid shape and glowing eyes and these large um, wings. And the witnesses were sort of terrified by the sight of it, and it sort of just rose up into the air, kind of like a helicopter would, you know, not by a furious beating of wings. And that's how actually a lot of people have described uh, Mothman. You know, it kind of rises into the air vertically. Um, But the Houston Batman one fascinates me. I mean, I live in Dallas, Texas, so Houston's not that far away. And I've done a number of investigations into it. And there are actually a few reports that post-date 
1952. The most recent one out from the city was uncovered by a friend and colleague of mine, uh, Ken Gerhard. And Ken uncovered a case where this sort of winged humanoid creature was seen lurking on the top of a building um, in Houston in the late 1990s. And the best way I can describe it, it kind of sounds just like the creature out of the Jeepers Creepers movies. You know, this sort of ominous-looking, dark, shadowy creature that, you know, surfaces from time to time. And uh, that's sort of a fascinating one for me because it's it's little known and sort of little investigated as well. And so uh, I might have to do a bit more into that one. And what was the other part of the question? What's your favorite topic uh, within the subject matter? Oh, we, um, well, without doubt, cryptozoology, of all the stuff I investigate, cryptozoology is my biggest interest and sort of the the subgroup within cryptozoology um, would probably be one of two things, either the British Bigfoot stuff or the Puerto Rican Chupacabra, which I've been on a number of investigations and expeditions looking for the Chupacabra. And uh, although in terms of media coverage, even within paranormal media, you know, it's certainly not at the height it was in the 1990s, you know, I still like to get back there and... Um, you know, do a few investigations because I like Puerto Rico as well. It's a cool place. You know, you can sort of go out and do an import, uh, trip a cabra investigation and then go back to San Juan and drink cold beer all night, you know. So it's a, it's a cool place. Right. <laughs> I always have to wonder here, of course, that if you do that and drink the cold beer, does that color your perception of what you're seeing? No. I, I mean, you get this sometimes where the skeptics say, well, he saw Bigfoot after, you know, drinking six pints of beer. Well, you think about it. Why would drinking beer make you hallucinate seeing Bigfoot? It wouldn't. You know, that, when skeptics say that sort of thing, it's ridiculous. It's like, oh, well, he drank six pints of beer and hallucinated seeing, I don't know, the Statue of Liberty walking down Times Square or something. No, beer doesn't do that to you. And it's ridiculous when the skeptics say, want to know how much you've drunk before a sighting. That's because alcohol doesn't cause you to hallucinate monsters. I like a few definitions here for listeners. We have classified documents on bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals. So what constitutes a bizarre creature as opposed to an extraordinary animal? That the book is actually sort of split into, not so much 50-50, but probably 80-20. Probably 80% of the stuff is what I would call bizarre creatures, like sea serpents, lake monsters, Bigfoot, the Yeti, things like that. Now, there are several chapters on what I would call extraordinary animals. One classic one involves a, a CIA project from the 1960s that was codenamed Acoustic Kitty, which was the real name of the project. It basically involved um, CIA scientists trying to turn cats into like living robots, kind of like a robo-cat, something along those lines. And the idea was to insert like antenna and radio listening devices into the body and tails of cats. And the plan was to, to release them in the direct vicinity of the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. Bear in mind, this was like 1966-67, and try and have the cats wander around the embassy and the grounds. And, you know, if any Russian personnel were walking by at the time, and the cat could pick up the conversation, and then it could be broadcast back, you know, to the guys in the van outside the embassy listening on headphones. They might get some snippets of important conversations. Yeah, this so the, story, this yeah. story has a tragic ending. <laughs> yeah, and so the, the program went ahead, and several cats we know were sort of modified, you know, with, it's almost like the $6 million cat or something like that. We have um, to do the $6 million break before we find out about the cats. Yeah. 
or the cat's in the cradle, depending on how it goes. Nick Redfern joins Gene and Chris. You're in... secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. Have you ever felt like the United States government knows way too much about your financial affairs? I continue to hear stories about property seizures, frozen bank accounts, confiscation of stocks and bonds. It makes me wonder if the U.S. citizen will ever again have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unfortunately, with the Drug and Money Laundering Act, the IRS Revenue Ruling 6045 of 1984, and the Trading with the Enemy Act and Franklin D. Roosevelt's Executive Order of 1933, some precious metal holdings are subject to government intervention. For this reason, Midas Resources has prepared a report explaining the boundaries of trading precious metals privately. Whether if you have any intention of trading with Midas Resources or not, I have instructed my representatives to give this report out free. Call for your free copy at 1-800-686-2237. When investing, always proceed with caution. Again, call 1-800-686-2237. Exercise your legal right to trade metals privately. 1-800-686-2237. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey water filtration systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today complete with two black Berkey elements for only $231 and the Berkey Guy will ship your order free of charge. With the purchase of a Berkey Light, the Berkey Guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only $39.99. That's over 30% off the retail price. Call the Berkey Guy at 1-877-886-3653. That's 1-877-886-3653. Or order online at GoBerkey.com. That's GoBerkey.com today. Can heart and body extract help with other ailments besides heart conditions, high blood pressure, clogged arteries, or unbalanced cholesterol? It did for Karen. I've been using heart and body extract for approximately two weeks. I've had an earwax buildup problem for many years, with over-the-counter stuff not working at all. I had very poor hearing due to this earwax buildup. Well, after two weeks of taking heart and body extract, my earwax buildup almost completely cleared up. Could this 
B, the effect of better body circulation. Heart and Body Extract is an effective 100% organic nutritional supplement specially formulated to allow your body to heal itself. My hearing is almost completely back to normal. I'm amazed. Order by calling 866-295-5305 or online at hbextract.com. That's 866-295-5305 or hbextract.com. Heart and Body Extract for long and healthy life. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. That is not Chris O'Brien trying to become a Dalek. (laughs) And there's no truth to the rumor that the 12th Doctor will be Nick Redfern, for those who are fans of Doctor Who. Okay, so we're talking about this cat story. Yeah, and the, the, we know that several sort of operations and procedures were done to sort of turn these cats into robot listening devices. And then um, the very first occasion when one was sort of going to be taken out into the field, so to speak, the team loaded the cat into the back of a van and parked as near as they could to the Russian embassy without attracting any attention and opened the back doors and, you know, tried to encourage the cat to cross the road and, you know, climb over the wall or whatever and, you know, just listening on conversations. But unfortunately, as they let the cat out of the back of the van and he crossed the road or she crossed the road, uh, he got hit by a taxi and so Acoustic Kitty became Splattered Kitty. And, uh, oh, that's not and that was fun. the end of the project. Oh. And, um, the project was actually shelved because it was seen as one of these bizarre programs that was just destined never to really work, I guess. Your tax dollars at work and play. <laughs> I think actually the kitty's still alive. It's been hanging out outside my home. So that, that's one example of an extraordinary animal. And the, another one I talk about in the book is a project that actually had more success but was ultimately also shelled. This relates to the 1950s, 1952-53, when the U.S. Army secretly initiated like a small project to determine if dogs, cats, and even pigeons possessed extrasensory perception, ESP. And the idea was to, if they did possess ESP, could it be used to train the animals to find landmines buried on battlefields? That's to say, you know, if American troops went into battle, there were concerns that the enemy had laid down minefields in the area. They would let the dogs, the cats and the pigeons loose, and they could psychically use their powers of the mind to determine where the landmines were. And this was a project which was heavily funded and went on for about 18 months in total. And again, I was able to get the files on this through the Freedom of Information Act, and they talk about how two German shepherds in particular, their names are Tessie and Binny, they had had a great deal of success in finding landmines where the military had even gone to great extents and great lengths to mask the odour of the landmines so they couldn't be blamed on, you know, using the power of a dog's nose to find them. And they did all sorts of, the military did all sorts of tricks to you know, prevent the dogs finding them under normal conditions. And yet time and again, you know, they'd be taken to a stretch of beach after the landmines in some cases had been buried like six to eight feet down even. These are dummy ones, by the way. And each time they found them. But the problem was, on occasion, you know, the dogs would hit the beaches and they'd just run and run and play. 
you know, they couldn't be controlled. And so the program was actually eventually shut down, not because there wasn't a significant amount of success, but because the dogs got sometimes got too overexcited. And so it was unpredictable. You know, the success, they couldn't understand how and why it worked, but they were, clear, they were sure that it did work. But the dogs couldn't be, you know, they didn't follow orders like troops would. You know, they, they were their own masters, so to speak. And it was seen as a bit too hazardous and unpredictable. So it was all just closed down. But everybody on the project agreed that they really had some good successes, you know, in terms of, of using ESP. It was dogs being dogs. Yeah, exactly. Dogs are being dogs, sometimes at play and sometimes at work. But unfortunately, the military wanted them always at work. So. Mm, that doesn't work at all. That doesn't no, work at dogs all. Like to play. And if, particularly if you take dogs to a beach, you know, they're going to see the beach, the sand and the water, and they're going to want to, you know, just have a good time. So. I never thought my dog being used for any real purpose other than having fun. <laughs> oh, but he's so cute, Gene. That's true. And he likes everybody. You know, I don't want to make the dog feel jaded about what the world is really like. Now, expanding on your stuff, we touched upon this in a previous segment, but how far did you expand things beyond the USA? One of the things I found was British government files on what are known as ABCs, or alien big cats. And this is a phenomenon that is heavily reported across Britain, where every year people see what sound like large black cats, you know, like huge black leopards. And there shouldn't be anything like that in running wild in Britain. You know, there are no large indigenous cats anywhere in the UK, or there shouldn't be. The largest cat that it, beyond a domestic house cat is called the Scottish wild cat. And it sounds kind of impressive, but it's actually barely any bigger than a normal cat. But it's quite, it actually is quite ferocious, and they will attack people. But, you know, they're, they're just regular-sized cats for the most part. But people see, you know, things from the size of, like, mountain lions roaming the UK. And, again, using freedom of information regulations in the UK, I got hold of a lot of reports where police forces around the UK um, had actually got a lot of files and, and records on, on, on file uh, concerning sightings of these large cats. And on a number of cases, um, the force helicopters have been sent out with like, night scope equipment and heat-seeking equipment to look for these cats. So the reports are taken very, very seriously. Now, to date at least, you know, nobody's been killed by one of these cats. Um, they seem fairly happy to sort of stay in the background and just live on, you know, animals in the wild. Um, but I think there's probably some government concern that if one of these things was ever caught or killed, you know, hysteria would break out and the, particularly the tabloid media would start talking about killer beasts being on the loose and whatever. So it's clear from the files that I don't think the government has... Well, I say that I don't think the government has proof of that these cats exist. There are rumours that the military and the government have shot several of these cats and hidden the evidence because they don't want to provoke hysteria and concern. But that, it's clear from the files that they do play down the presence of these big cats in Britain because of the fear, you know, of things spiralling out of control, etc. That's a, an interesting area. And I also cover a number of other nations in the book, one being Australia, this in relation to a creature known as the thylacine. The thylacine was a real animal that became, or supposedly became extinct in the mid-1930s. 
and it was a marsupial, that's to say, like a kangaroo. It carries its young in a pouch, but it looked like a cross between a German shepherd, a coyote, and a tiger. It had these large stripes down its body, and it could actually open its jaws like a snake can, you know, almost like dislocate its jaws to have them almost like running 180 degrees parallel to each other. I, again, through freedom of information, got hold of files showing how various arms of the Australian wildlife agencies had actually been monitoring reports from the thylacine and sightings right up to the present day. You know, it makes a sort of fascinating reading. These weren't so much classified and secret files, but there were just records where dossiers had been put together. And, and over the years, you know, they paint this fascinating picture of this creature that pretty much everybody says there's no way it can still exist. The Australian government files seem to suggest it really does exist. And I mention this for a couple of reasons. One, because it's an official government file on a creature that's presumably extinct, but also it demonstrates that creatures that we're told are are extinct. In some cases, quite large animals may not be quite extinct after all, you know, and that could apply to things like sea serpents and lake monsters that have been attributed to things like plesiosaurs, you know, maybe against all the odds, relic populations have survived, you know, over millions of years. That might be the big story right there. The fact that science doesn't admit that things they call extinct are not extinct. We can yeah. get extinct right now if I don't do this. We have Nick Redfern. The book is Monster Files. You're with Gene and with Chris. You're in... The GCN Radio Network. Providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats i can't even list them download now to see if graphic converter is good for you like one and a half million other users guess what you could save money when you buy graphic converter use the coupon code night owl use the coupon code night owl to get a special price for graphic converter go to lemkesoft.com that's l-e-m-k-e soft.com lemkesoft.com l-e-m-k-e soft.com the government's Department of Homeland Security is buying up loads of ammo. At the same time, they're restricting civilians' rights to own and purchase firearms. Can you put two and two together? Infidel Body Armor can stop every round, including hollow points and 308 sniper rounds. Is reasonably priced and fully legal. But for how long? Go to InfidelBodyArmor.com, spelled I-N-F-I-D-E-L, BodyArmor.com. Infidel Body Armor just won't quit. 
We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit and carting to a private bank, having it led back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Hi, Ted Anderson. I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. Being prepared against possible food shortages and economic collapse is not complicated. Just remember two words, disaster, stuff. Add.com after those two words and you've got just one side for all your preparedness needs. DisasterStuff.com prepares your family against food shortages with Linden Farms freeze-dried foods in buckets or gourmet reserves, freeze-dried food in number 10 cans, both with free shipping. Purify and rid your water of contaminants with a big Berkey or other Berkey system and get free shipping plus a water level spigot or fluoride filter at cost and protect your radios and other electronic from EMPs with our EMP Faraday bags starting at just $5.90. When the food shortages and economic instability happens, be ready with all your stuff from DisasterStuff.com. Just remember two words, DisasterStuff.com. Freedom through self-reliance and personal responsibility. Springtime is sale time at Herbal Healer Academy. Current customers know this is the time to save big and stock up at HerbalHealer.com. New customers, welcome to the web's best place to save on vitamins, minerals, and more. Right now, Herbal Healer's spring specials include our 500 parts per million colloidal silver, all sizes on sale, CoQ10 with Hawthorne, Colon Enhancer, Sea Cucumber, Super Fam and Super Male Plex, plus Glucosamine Chondroitin, our best selling liquid CalMag Vitamin D, and our colloidal minerals, all on sale for spring at HerbalHealer.com. And Herbal Healer also offers certificate correspondence courses in natural medicine. Enjoy same-day shipping and free online newsletter. Log on to our nation's leader in supplying quality natural medicine and education since 1988. Herbal Healer Academy at HerbalHealer.com. Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. <laughs> what was that, your Bigfoot uh, bumper? I thought that was his uh, Dalek bumper. He wants to sound more like a Dalek. I can't do it. That was kind of like me being possessed and doing some weird, I don't know, occult ritual, maybe something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Nick Redfern is not a Dalek, ladies and gentlemen. It was, a little bit, it was actually a little bit of my Lemmy impression as well. Lemmy from Motorhead, for people who don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, blame it on Lemmy. <laughs> it's all his fault. It's the Ice of Spades. Exactly, the Ice of Spades, that's right, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Okay, does the Pentagon have the body of Bigfoot on ice? Well, I mean, again, this sort of relates to the uh, Mount St. Helens story, and one other one I have in the book where this goes back to the early 1960s, where... Right, the Minnesota Iceman. Yeah, well, the Minnesota Iceman, that's a similar case, where reportedly a body of one of these creatures has been found. And the, the, way, the story as it relates to Mount St. Helens and this 1960s case I talk about, is supposedly the military got their hands on one of these creatures. And very weirdly, it talks about how it appeared to be like a 
just an unknown ape-like animal, but it had 32 teeth like a human. And very bizarrely, the story is that it had some sort of weird metallic device implanted or inserted under its skin. I think it was the left forearm or the right forearm. There was speculation, was it a tracking device or some sort of bugging device? And if it was, who on earth or off it, you know, put it there? But it's a very weird story. Only it was given to me by one guy who got the story from his grandfather who served in the military. So, you know, it was a little bit of a friend of a friend story. But, he, you know, he went on the record with his real name um, and, his, and his grandfather's real name. But it's one of these stories for which nothing official has ever surfaced. And, you know, and I, and I note that in the book. I point that out, the fact that, you know, it's one of these cases where it's, it's take it or leave it. But, you know, I often, with the witnesses' permission, publish these because when you reach a stumbling block and you've got no documentation, sometimes just relating the bare facts brings forward other people who say, well, you know, I knew something about that, and then that can potentially open another door. So that's why I included it. But, you know, it's a bizarre story when it goes from the military investigating or autopsying what seems to be a gorilla and then, or, or an unknown type of gorilla or ape, and then they suddenly stumble across this weird device implanted in its arm. And it wasn't done by one of our military... Well, no, I mean, the story was that the reason why the Bigfoot was dead was because it was reportedly shot outside the NASA installation, outside the boundaries. And the reason it was shot was because, reportedly, there were weird lights seen hovering over the woods the previous night, and one of the guards got panicky and shot into the heart of the woods where you could see these big shadowy things moving and reportedly killed the creature. So not only do you have this creature with this thing in its arm, but it's the sighting of it and the exact location tied in with these weird, like, basketball-sized lights hovering over the, the surrounding woods as well. From the Yikes Department. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Bureau of Yikes. Yeah. Like, well, was that outside of Redstone? Um, it was a NASA installation in Ohio. I forget the name of oh, it. Oh, in now, Ohio, but, uh, okay. Yeah, but it was in Ohio, yeah. And it was sort of 1960... Two or three, I think it was. Well, kind of during that same time period, a little later, you have the uh, the infamous uh, Minnesota Iceman. Now, you came up with some interesting new information about that that I was unaware of. Uh, why don't you give us a quick thumbnail sketch of, of this particular case? It's pretty pretty interesting. Uh, Ivan Sanderson, the famed, uh, almost legendary cryptozoologist, uh, evidently had some time uh, to examine this thing in, in as it was encased in this block of ice. Why don't you give us a thumbnail sketch? Well, yeah, the story of the Minnesota Iceman goes back to the mid-1960s and uh, a guy named Frank Hansen. He was somebody who, he was an ex businessman who would put things, strange-looking things on display at, like, state fairs, you know, sort of like a, a latter-day equivalent of things like freak shows, that sort of thing. Hansen had this ape-like or semi-human primitive-looking creature encased in a block of ice that he would put on display that became known as the Minnesota Iceman because one of the theories was that it was shot dead in Minnesota. But the, the other story was that it was a primitive humanoid ape-like creature shot and killed by U.S. forces in the Vietnam War and then smuggled back to the U.S. in a body bag and actually handed over to an anonymous millionaire who had apparently arranged or knew the creatures lived over there and arranged for to one be, to be brought back to him. Now, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not what Frank Hansen had on display was a real creature or was it a sophisticated mock-up, like a dummy? Or there's a, a second theory 
that the original creature that Hansen had on display was the genuine article, but then it was returned to this anonymous millionaire, and Hansen wanted to continue promoting it and earning money, so he had a dummy model made to the same specifications and put that on display. Now, whatever the answer is, we know that one, the latter version was a dummy, and it's actually on display now at a place called the Museum of the Weird, which is in Austin, Texas. You can go down there and see the one that Hanson put on display for like the last 20 years, but the first 10 years is the one that sort of interests us more. Now, there was a lot of talk at the time that it was a primitive human, not an unknown ape, and this rumour got back to the FBI, and because the FBI heard a rumour that not only was the Minnesota Iceman potentially a primitive human, but had been shot, then the whole issue of the legislation surrounding, well, does that mean it was a murder? That sort of um, cropped up. And what happened was that a representative of the FBI, a local special agent who was uh, local to the area where Hansen was living at the time, actually turned up on his doorstep and said, you know, I want to see this creature, the Minnesota Iceman. We've heard it could be a, a human-type creature, that it could have been killed as a result of murder. And so Hansen was a bit concerned and agreed, obviously, to show it to the FBI. And, uh, but he said, well, you know, I, I think he's just an ape. And he looked at it and said, well, yeah, it looks like an ape. And whatever type of ape it is, it's still an ape. So the guy sort of left a bit bemused. I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't the sort of work the FBI was usually involved in. But Frank Hansen, never one to sort of miss up an opportunity to promote his product, built this big sign and painted on it something along the lines of the Minnesota Iceman investigated by the FBI, which I'm sure probably didn't please the FBI yeah. too much, but uh, yeah. he stood it next to the display every time it was it was shown. So, uh, again, it shows like a, a bizarre aspect of how the government has got involved in cryptozoology. Well, speaking of Vietnam, uh, the story I heard is that the creature was shot by troops uh, during the Vietnam War. I think you mentioned also near Da Nang, isn't there a river where some of our personnel over there during the war saw these huge uh, giant snakes or something, uh, if I yeah, remember correctly? This is, yeah, this is a story I talk about in the book. Again, it's, it's, one of, it's a document I actually stumbled upon while not actually looking for anything along these lines. And um, it talks about a, a place called the Han River um, in Vietnam, which during the Vietnam War was a very strategic place nearby. There was South Vietnam bases, you know, which were friendly to the U.S. and military personnel from the U.S. were stationed there. The documents talk about how on one occasion, or actually two, because there's like a, an in, a reference to like, a, like a, a memory of a, a similar sighting occurring about four or five years previous. But this was sort of the mid to late 60s when the crew of a helicopter were flying over the Han River. And as they were sort of taken to the skies, they reported seeing this large snake-like creature swimming below the surface of the water. Now, had it been dark in colour, it probably would have, they wouldn't even have seen it, but it was reportedly like a bright yellow colour and was sort of clearly visible. And they could tell it wasn't, you know, like a, a log or a weird coloured tree or anything like this. It was, I mean, it was extensively long. And they could also report it seeing what looked like four flippers bright yellow flippers coming from the side the body of the creature and that sort of was the key point that you know led them to believe that what they were looking at was a large animate 
creature like a lake monster or a sea serpent and um, they prepared a report on it and filed a report and the document talks about how everybody was interviewed and debriefed but it was actually viewed as like an amusing little event as an aside you know just a talking point I guess in the after work or whatever nothing was really done with it other than the you know it was filed away because you know the troops were fighting the Vietnam War fighting the North Vietnamese and a sighting of a sea serpent might have been interesting but they had better more important things to do so it was just a case with this one it was filed away and just you know vanished into obscurity before we vanish into obscurity (laughs) (laughs) he likes that we have nick redfern joining gene and chris you're in the paracast america's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade we are the GCN Radio Network. If you want to get your website online and you need reliable service, first-class service at the lowest possible price, there's only one place to go. Well, DreamHost has a special promotion with our show where they'll offer you unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, one-click web apps such as WordPress, 24-7 support. You can save over $55. You want to know how? Go to DreamHost.com slash radio, DreamHost.com slash radio. Whether it's personal mail, whether it's business email, you want reliable, dependable delivery, freedom from spam, freedom from viruses. Well, Polaris Mail offers professional email hosting services for your personal or small business use. Each account uses 25 gigabytes of storage, an easy-to-use webmail interface, and full mobile sync. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial at PolarisMail.com, PolarisMail.com. So, a natural disaster strikes, and out goes your power. You risk losing stored food in electric freezers and refrigerators. Your options, lose all that expensive food and medication, fire up a noisy gasoline-powered generator, or switch now to a propane or natural gas-powered refrigerator from Ben's Discount Supply. Ben'sDiscountSupply.com has a complete line of propane-powered refrigerators. Freezers in sizes ranging from a small camper cooler size up to a whopping 21-cubic-foot refrigerator freezer or a 22-cubic-foot deep freezer. In stock and ready to ship anywhere. Ben'sDiscountSupply.com also stocks a full line of solar-powered appliances to get you completely off the grid. Check out Ben'sDiscountSupply.com or call 800-771-7702. That's 800 771 or click bensdiscountsupply.com for camping, home, or bug out location. Bank on bensdiscountsupply.com. Your home alarm works after an intruder is inside your home, but real home security begins before intruders enter. Burglaries and home invasions are at an all-time high, and crime is skyrocketing in rural and suburban areas. 85% of break-ins are through a door, and police response is often greater than 20 minutes. You can't afford to wait that long. Stop burglars with police-tested and recommended Easy Armor from Armor Concepts. Easy Armor keeps intruders out. It's barely visible and installs easily. Easy Armor reinforces the door's 
weak points, comes in three colors, and is guaranteed to stop kick-ins. Get Easy Armor now and get peace of mind. Order by calling 888-58-ARMOR. That's 888-582-7667. Or go to easyarmor.net. Spelled E-Z-A-R-M-O-R.net. Special offer only available to GCN listeners. Ask about it when you call for your Easy Armor today from Armor Concepts. Ultimate door security made easy. Pharmacist Ben Fuchs has learned the importance of good fats for good health. Good fats are essential fatty acids, and they're called essential because they're necessary for good health. That's why he uses Ultimate EFAs from Longevity. Among the fats, the most powerful are two fats that are referred to as essential fatty acids. Now, nothing in the world of nutrition is more important than essential fatty fatty acids. The word essential means you better get it in your diet or you're in big trouble. Essential fatty acids are perhaps the most multifunctional and versatile of all the essential nutrients. Essential fatty acids are not just important for the heart. They're important for everything in the body. To get the essential fatty acids that are so important to your body, order Ultimate EFAs from Longevity by calling 866-735-2470. That's 866-735-2470. Or on the web at brightsidebin.com. That's brightsidebin.com. Order today. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. Nick Redfern, author of Monster Files, joining Gene and Chris in the PowerCast. There's so many thousands of questions we can get to. I'm going to go catch as catch can with a few others here. And that is, the U.S. government, any suggestions, ideas, what they might know that we ought to get our hands on? Oh, um, well, yeah, I, I mean, for me, I'm fascinated by the fact that they're fascinated with Bigfoot. You know, we get a lot of reports of military interest in Bigfoot's cases. I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book concerning a, a well-respected researcher named Stan Gordon, who's been in the field for many decades. And we should and- mention to our listeners... He's been on the show a number of times. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, cool. Stan's done an excellent book called Silent Invasion, which deals with a Bigfoot wave in Pennsylvania, where Stan lives, in the early 70s, 73 to 74. And at the height of Stan's inquiries, he got a lot of reports um, suggesting local military and government involvement and interest in these cases. And Stan himself was visited by two government representatives who said, you know, keep us informed. It wasn't like a sinister man in black visit or a threat. It was just, hey, you know, if you uncover anything interesting, just keep us informed. We're we're, we're looking into this. Um, But he also uncovered cases where military personnel had visited witnesses to Bigfoot and shown them, again, not like many black stuff, but they'd actually shown them photographs that the military had on file of Bigfoot and said, did this look like anything that you saw? And what's interesting is that all the cases that Stan found where the military had taken an interest in Bigfoot, they were all associated with other phenomena as well, like strange lights in the sky, like people going into trances even when the creatures appeared and these animals vanishing again in like flashes of light. So in other words, the military was taking an interest in eyewitnesses where there seemed to be suggestions that Bigfoot was more than just an unknown ape roaming the United States. So for me, you know, that would be the one thing I would sort of really like to uncover is what has prompted the the investigations of the government into Bigfoot and what have they found possibly suggesting it is more than just, you know, a U.S. equivalent of a Congo gorilla or whatever. 
Of course, getting anything out of the government right now in this particular climate must be near impossible. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of the stuff I uncover is historical, because, you know, the older material is more likely to be officially declassified. Um, and that is the case, you know, in, in today's world, um, you know, the, the legislation over determining what can be declassified and what can't be declassified, you know, the, the files are scrutinized for a far greater time period to ensure nothing that affects national security is, is, is released. But, you know, these older files from the 40s and 50s, um, you know, there's less concern about those because it's a long-gone era. The people involved are long-gone as well. And, you know, more often than not, it's sort of a, it's a very fascinating file, but it's, you know, it could be relatively obscure as well, sort of like the Tom Slick stuff, you know. You wonder what you can find there about UFOs and such. But the other question is here with current stuff that's supposedly secret leaking like a sieve. How do they keep stuff secret for four, five, six decades? Well, I mean, with, with the Freedom of Information Act, you know, there's there's legislation that allows for continuing withholding of files. The Freedom of Information Act isn't a tool that opens all doors. For example, there are there are five or six pieces of uh, rulings within the FOIA documentation that allows for continuing withholding of files. Um, the, the most cited one is B1, which covers national security. So if there's something in a 50-year-old file that can't be released, you know, they can just slap the B1 coding on it and you don't get to see it. And there are also what are called special access programs or SAPs, which essentially is like the official term for something like a black project where, you know, it's, it's not necessarily even known to exist by Congress and, and organizations like this. And um, so SAPs are a you know, a good way in which um, material can, you know, stays behind closed doors. Um, because the thing is, with the Freedom of Information Act, you have to specifically be able to know what you're asking for. You know, it's no good writing to the FBI and saying, I want your files on, on men in black, you know, or on contactees, shall we say. Let's say the contactees. What you've got to do is provide the name of one of the contactees, like George Adamski, and preferably provide date of birth, date of death, a photocopy of a, of a death certificate or, a, a, you know, an obituary in a newspaper, and send all that in. You know, saying, I want files on the 1950s co contactees is not going to work. You have to be very specific. And, of course, if you can't be specific... Well, it's not the case that the agency won't necessarily release the material. They've got nothing to go on if you're just using random terms and words, you know. Well, maybe they do, but that gives them an excuse. Well, it may give them an excuse, but sometimes it actually is the legitimate truth. You know, if you work in the Freedom of Information Office and you get a letter from somebody who says, under the terms of the Freedom of Information Act, I demand you release your files on abductees, you know, how is that person necessarily going to know you're talking about alien abductees. How are they going to... And even if they are, how is that person in the foyer office? Remember, the person is an employee of the foyer office. They're not, you know, necessarily conversing with everything that's gone on. So how will they know you're talking about Betty and Barney Hill or Betty Andreessen or some other abductee? They won't. You know, you have to be really specific. So, you know, you could... Somebody might make the argument that... Yeah, it's a convenient way of not releasing files, but these people are only human as well. They need specific information to allow them to search for a file. 
So if I want to search for a file, I have to have as much specificity as possible. I have to yes. virtually know something about the file, at least a yes. fair amount of information about what might be contained in it, dates, times, all that other stuff, before they'll even be able to find it, if they'll find it and if they'll be able to release it. Yes. Yeah, that, that's one of the things. It's not enough just to say, you know, you, you can't be... Um, you know, vague about this because otherwise the search would go on forever, you know. It's not that we can expect the government to be very efficient. They're too busy making Star Trek movies for trainees. <laughs> and after they listen to the show, the NSA is going to be engaged in all sorts of discussions about what we were talking about, trying to put some kind of figure on it. I am only kidding. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think it's like I came back to earlier. Um, the, there's, there's clear evidence that the UFO community has been watched over the years, but it's done, as far as I can tell at least, you know, the best way to do it is in the open. Listen to radio shows, listen to podcasts, read books, because ufologists invariably talk about what they've uncovered. You know, you don't need, you actually don't need to bug the telephone of a ufologist when that person has a, a monthly column or an online, you know, column at this side or that side, because you know, invariably the time comes when they write about what they found. So, you know, that's it, it's the easiest way of watching us, you know, is to see what we put out there. Okay, so you wrote this book about what they know, about the government secrets, the classified documents. Do you think now they've expanded their files about Nick Redfern? Um, no, I, I truthfully don't. You know, I mean, some authors might say, oh, yeah, they're watching me because they think it's going to increase their popularity or whatever or the intrigue surrounding them. You know, I'm honest with you that I don't think so because, you know, I'm not some Gary McKinnon type breaking into computers. I'm not illegally, you know, leaking material. I'm using the Freedom of Information Act, you know, so I'm using stuff that the government is letting us see. You know, that, that's a completely different thing to somebody, you know, hacking systems or releasing um, classified materials to WikiLeaks or whatever, you know, which, which is totally different. So, no, you know, it's like if you're, if you're using what the government's letting you see, they might be interested in knowing what you do with it, but at the end of the day, you're still using stuff that is legally freely available. The book is called Monster Files. A look inside government secrets and classified documents on bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals, and I am none of the above, nor am I a bizarre secret or a classified secret. Nick Redfern, tell our listeners, please, how they can get a hold of you or check out your stuff. People can reach me at nickredfern14, F-O-R-T-E-A-N, dot blogspot.com, or they can reach me at Facebook, and books available, Amazon, or stroll into Barnes & Noble and pick it up off the shelves. How about that? Chris O'Brien, where can we find you? I've got to know. Uh, our Strange Planet. You know, we live on a strange planet. It's OurStrangePlanet.com. And you can find us at TheParacast.com. We are also known as The Paracast on Twitter, greatly expanding the number of followers. We are also running a Paracast fan club on Facebook. Two of them someday will merge them into one, but probably not in our lifetimes. Nick Redfern, thanks for joining us this week on The Paracast. All right, thanks, guys. The Paracast. 
featuring Gene Steinberg and Christopher O'Brien is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.